the Jodcast. And the stars look very different today. With Mateusz Melenta, Haritina Mogosanu, Ian Morrison, Indy Leclerc, Max Potter, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, February 2016, Stargazing Live, Backstage Edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Indy, and joining me in the studio are Charlie, Ben, and Max. And it's uh, Max's first time presenting. He's recorded a couple of interviews for us before, so Max, why don't you give us a little intro about yourself? Hi, I'm Max. I've just started at JBCA. I'm researching solar physics with Professor Philippa Browning, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Cool, awesome. Uh, yeah, one of the very uh, few solar physicists at JBCA. Unfortunately, that's a bit of a minority, but um, well, hopefully we'll get more, and it's good to have one doing the Jodcast. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit difficult because no one knows what I'm talking about, but then I don't know what anyone else is talking about either, so that's <laughs> it, it goes both ways. You've got to love astronomy. What's really great is we can send you and to interview all the solar people. <laughs> coming up soon. So for this month's episode, we've, we're bringing you something a little bit special uh, because thanks to the help of uh, Professor Tim O'Brien, we were able to sneak into the backstage area while they were filming Stargazing Alive uh, in the middle of January this year. And we managed to get our hands on some very juicy interviews with, uh, with, with people involved uh, in making the show. We have for you this time, we interview Matt Taylor about the current status of the Rosetta mission, Brooke Simmons about the Zooniverse project, Professor Lucy Green about the sun and her current solar projects, and our very own Sally Cooper about the Pulsar Hunters project and what it's like to be on TV for 30 seconds. Ian Morrison and Haritina Mogasanu take a look at what's happening in the night sky this month. But first, before all of that, here's Matt with this month's news. In the news this month, Matt's voice is currently unwell, so this will actually be Ian reading the news as written by Matt. In their newspaper, published in the Astronomical Journal, Contentin Batigan and Michael Brown, both from the California Institute of Technology, have announced that they have found evidence for the existence of a massive planet beyond the orbit of Pluto. Michael Brown is known by many professional and amateur astronomers as the man who killed Pluto, as he was one of the main scientists who pushed for demoting Pluto to the status of a dwarf planet. The new object has already been enthusiastically dubbed Planet 9, However, we currently know very little about this new discovery. Astronomers had already been aware of the unexpected clustering of some of the orbital properties of the distant Kuiper Belt objects. As giant planets in our solar system are expected to disrupt and randomise such a system, an additional mechanism is required in order to keep the clustering in place. Two theories attempting to explain this phenomenon already existed prior to this announcement, but both were ruled to be improbable. The evidence of the new object emerged only from numerical simulations, however. Its parameters are also currently not well known, but is expected to have a mass of about 10 Earth masses and travel around the Sun on a highly elliptical orbit, with a perihelion between 200 and 300 AU and aphelion between 600 and 1200 AU meaning that at its closest approach it is expected to be five times further away from the Sun than Pluto is at aphelion, which is 49 AU. If confirmed, the discovery would follow the history of Neptune's first observations, with Neptune's existence first predicted through the observations of irregularities in Uranus's orbit. The detailed mathematical calculations made it possible to observe Neptune directly in 1846. Planet 9 was greeted with a dose of scepticism by some scientists, as previous such announcements still remain unconfirmed. 
It is, however, believed that future observations based on these new predictions will allow astronomers to give definite answers on the existence of planets in the outer solar system. Also in the news this month, private space exploration company SpaceX has had its share of good and bad luck. On December 22nd, the two-stage Falcon 9 rocket successfully launched a payload with the 11 Orbcom OG2 communication satellites. A few minutes later, the first stage of the Falcon 9 rocket landed safely on the ground, back at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station's landing zone 1. This was the first time such a feat has been achieved, and it marks an important milestone towards the development of the fully reusable first stage of the Falcon 9 rocket. It will eventually allow a dramatic reduction in the cost of sending cargo and ultimately humans into Earth orbit. Images released two weeks after the landing showed a structurally intact, although slightly blackened, first stage. This particular example will however not fly into space again. On January 15th, SpaceX conducted a static firing during which the performance of all of the engines of the recovered booster was tested. The overall results were very good, although some fluctuations in the engine's thrust were reported. Elon Musk, SpaceX's founder, confirmed that the rocket will now be treated as an artefact, and it is probable it will become a valued piece of a museum exhibition. On January 17th, the company successfully launched another rocket, this time carrying a Jason-3 ocean monitoring satellite. In this case, a landing on a platform floating on the Pacific Ocean was planned. It was, however, unsuccessful making it the third time after January and April 2015's failed attempts that this has happened. A video released shortly after the landing shows the first stage landing vertically, as expected, but then starting to tilt over to one side and ultimately hitting the deck and exploding. The possible cause of this mishap, according to a post from Musk, was ice buildup due to a heavy fog, which led to one of the four landing legs failing to latch securely. The company is hoping to be back on track with a successful barge landing in 2016 as they start to feel the pressure from their competitors, including Blue Origin, owned by Amazon's founder and CEO Jeff Bezos, who have managed to send their new Shepard booster to space and land it safely on the ground twice in the last two months. And finally, lovers of exotic cuisine may be in for a treat. A paper authored by CSIRO astronomer Keith Bannister and his colleagues, describes new structures in our Milky Way. These invisible lumps of gas are reported to be shaped like lasagna sheets, noodles, or hazelnuts. Using a new survey technique, the team was able to observe a variation in the light curve of a quasar. Called extreme scattering events, these phenomena were first observed more than 30 years ago, and so far only a handful of them have been recorded. The team has observed a sample of around 1,000 active galactic nuclei every month, looking for a highly structured change in their radio spectra between 4 and 8 GHz, using the Australia Telescope Compact Array, or ATCA. Two months after the start of the survey, Bannister and his colleagues were able to identify an ESE in the direction of PKS 1939-315, a quasar in the constellation of Sagittarius. The characteristics of the first observations showed this particular ESE was possibly still in progress, making it the first real-time observation of such an event. After the initial discovery, 
more frequent monitoring was started, this time with a wider frequency range between 2 and 11 GHz. Other instruments were also used, including the Very Long Baseline Array, or VLBA, which was used to obtain geometry and angular scale information, the Gemini South Telescope, which was used to provide information on reading due to dust, and the Small and Medium Research System 1.3 meter Telescope, which was used to obtain optical images of the source. Observations from these telescopes showed no variability. Thanks to the wide bandwidth of ATCA, the team was able to get better constraints on the lens model, using a new method of computing a one-dimensional slice through the lens. Two possible geometries were considered, an anisotropic one equivalent to an edge-on-sheet, and an axially symmetric geometry, which is used for modelling spherical clouds and shells. The obtained results were inconclusive, however. The electron column density distributions throughout the slice were similar for both models. Both geometries exhibited variations in their electron column density consistent with the diverging lens model and did not support the possibility of a converging lens, making it possible to rule out that particular model. The most probable explanation is that we are looking at a sheet of material edge-on, or as the team member Dr. Cormac Reynolds said, we might be looking down the barrel of a hollow cylinder like a noodle, or at a spherical shell like a hazelnut. It is expected that additional observations will provide further information on the distribution and geometry of these elusive lenses. This, in turn, should tell us more about the composition of the interstellar medium in the Milky Way. Thanks for that, Matt. As I said before the news, uh, this month we've got some really cool interviews for you guys, mainly because we managed to sneak backstage during the filming of Stargazing Live. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that was a really cool experience uh, uh, to actually have a look at a behind the scenes of a live live TV show, and it was about astronomy. Yeah, well, standing behind the cameras while they were actually filming, it was pretty cool. So we managed to hang around in the in the Jodrell Tea Room uh, with some of the other scientists who were who were there, and. Um, well, people come and go, so we, we managed to get our hands on, uh, on, on Matt Taylor, the Rosetta Head. Uh, we managed to, to find uh, Lucy Green to give us a bit of her time. But first, we're going we're gonna to give you an interview with our very own Sally Cooper, who has presented a few times, done a couple of interviews, and who was the uh, chief editor for a while. She was part of the Pulsar Hunters Project. She was very heavily involved in this Pulsar Hunters Project, citizen science project, run using the Zooniverse, which let people identify pulsars in, in data which would then lead to, to follow-ups from scientists and well, I'm sure many of our listeners will have probably participated in that during the, the week of Stargazing Live. So here's Sally talking about um, her experience with that and the science behind it. Today we are joined by special guest Sally Cooper who's joining us not straight off her role as a BBC presenter but a few days later. Welcome to the Jobcast once again. Hello. And you, you've been on here before as a role as a pulsar hunter. Yeah, I think when I was interviewed before, I just found two pulsars, my first two pulsars. And now you're getting a British public to do it for you. I am indeed. <laughs> so you've been involved in stargazing live in a, a really special way this year. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what you've been up to? Yeah, so I, as along with a lot of the Manchester people, were involved with the sort of science behind the pulsar hunters. So my involvement was preparing the data that we were going to put onto the website, as well as when the website went live, there was a group of us who were looking at all of the classifications that the public had made. So this is all for the Pulsar Hunter project, which is a Zooniverse project. 
presumably you've been planning this for quite a while before the, the live episode started. When did you first start thinking that that searching for pulsars was something that could be done with the public? There's one problem with searching for pulsars. Well, there are many problems, but one of them is the number of candidates that we get. So doing a survey, such as the one of the main ones I'm involved with, which is with LOFAR, uh, the Low Frequency Array in the Netherlands, is that for one pointing on the sky, we get 20,000 candidates. Now, if you times that by the number of pointings on the sky, we're talking millions of candidates. And is the pointing the area in the sky? That's... The pointing is, yeah, the sort of the beam on the sky. That the um, telescope is pointed at? Yeah. For LOFAR, we actually create 222 beams on the sky. So from those, we get around 20,000 candidates. Per pointing? Yes. Wow. So what do you mean by candidate? So a candidate is just a repeating signal... Obviously, you're searching for repeating signals because pulsars, by nature, repeat over exactly. a time period. Yeah. So what's involved for, for you as a pulsar hunter in going through these candidates and actually picking out real pulsars? And what kind of things can contaminate that process? So this is the problem, is that there are, say, millions of candidates per survey. And from each candidate, you can look at various different features belonging to that candidate. So one of them might be the pulse profile. And from post profile is what pulsar hunters were seeing. Yeah, and then the other plot below that on the website was phase versus time, which is how consistent the signal was throughout time. And you want it to be very consistent throughout time, is that right? It has to be. Yeah, because the a pulsar is really stable. The period of a pulsar is really stable. You want it to be appearing at the same point in the phase. At every time. At every time. And then you will see a dark stripe, which is what people were looking for. So a signature pulsar would look like two bright peaks in the profile, which refers to the two phases, and then also two what I call sort of tram lines, which are the two vertical lines in the phase versus time plot. So you had all of these millions of candidates for the survey. How many were you getting through on your own? How how did you sit down and look through them? Originally, survey, Pulsar surveys began with people just viewing them by eye, which is how I also began. But then you get into the realm of millions of candidates, and this becomes completely not feasible for a single PhD student to do in their, well, Three PhD years. lifetime. Yeah. So one thing is that humans are really good at picking out features by eye. But as I said, it's difficult for one person to do that. So what we moved to doing was applying machine learning techniques to these candidates and they can give us a very good filter. Uh, They can remove a lot of at least the noise but the problem with telescopes in the modern world is that they're normally uh, in RFI environments so I mean radio frequency uh, can disturb the signal. So what examples of things get in your way that you notice on on a regular basis? Can you look at a thing and say that's a microwave? Well, that's an aeroplane. Uh, so microwaves have definitely cropped up. You might have heard about them. Peritons might mm. have been discussed on the Jodcast before. The bane of my life. Yeah. <laughs> but specific to the data set that was on Pulsar Hunters, there is radar that is near to the Effelsberg radio telescope. And so you can imagine radar signal can radio. be easily picked up by a radio telescope. 
And it's um, periodic. And it's periodic. So this is the problem. This is the problem why RFI is particularly worse than, say, just noise, is that RFI is periodic and can mimic the signature of a pulsar very well. Can you get rid of some RFI but keep that instance of data so that you don't have to throw it away when it's been contaminated. So one big difference between RFI and pulsars is that pulsars are generally broadband, which means they show up a range of frequencies. So similar to the time phase plot that was on the website, there's also a frequency phase plot, and you're looking for a similar signature of two tramlines so it's consistent with frequency, whereas RFI tends to be narrowband, and so you only see it at a specific frequency. So it's quite easy to see that by eye and throw away those candidates. And that's what we'd ideally like a classifier to be able to do is say pulsars, but definitely aren't, and those that look like pulsars and may potentially turn out to be new discoveries. And then you slot in the humans to do the the final analysis with that. Yeah, so normally when you apply some sort of classifier, you want to filter out all of the noise, and then you're left with only candidates that are predicted to be positive, and then they normally go on for visual inspection by a human as the very end process. So what you're you're essentially doing with Pulsar Zoo was using the public as a human classifier for Pulsars. Yeah, exactly. So instead of applying, say, an algorithm to look for features to maybe separate the data, we instead used humans, which I believe uh, Brooke will uh, talk about. But the way that we use that basically is that you take a, a cand- one candidate and say 50 people might classify this on the web page. 10 of them might say, no, this is rubbish. But the other 40 might say, yes, this is a pulsar. And therefore you get a score based on ha- the voting, the classification of those people. And then you can take all of those classifications and make a ranked list. Us as the science team behind it at Manchester, we just acquired this list of classifications and then we would just check whether these candidates were worthwhile for follow-up. And we were going through that manually um, the day after and the day after and the day after. Yeah, we were strong-armed into it. Everyone was strong-armed into it. Very little sleep. Everybody else's research had to be paused um, to fill in colossal spreadsheets. What was the overall result of these endeavours? Yes, thank you for that, for your involvement. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, I think the whole team here at Manchester, well, everybody was actually located in different places, so I speak generally of Manchester. But the science team basically were taking this list of candidates and taking what the public could see on the web page was just a simplified version of the full candidate so that the top few ranked ones, we would check the full version of this candidate, by which I mean some of the extra data that goes along with it. Um, such as the frequency phase plot. And we could therefore check, is this RFI? We have specialist eyes, so the public might think that this is a good candidate, but to a trained pulsar hunter, might be immediately be able to dismiss it. So it, the whole project shrunk down the number that the trained specialists had to look at to a manageable chunk. That's exactly what this is good for. That's exactly what citizen science uh, for pulsar hunting is good at. So can you talk a little bit about what it was that, that we've actually found? So the data that was on Pulsar Hunters was all from a survey called the High Time Resolution Universe North, which is performed by the Effelsberg Telescope in Germany. There were 200,000 candidates that were uploaded to Pulsar Hunters, 
and we received over three million classifications. So a huge effort by the public. It was amazing to see the response. You've just referred to what we found. So on the show, uh, we discussed the discovery of a pulsar. So this was an independent discovery of pulsar 2045 plus 3633. No, it has another nickname. It does have a nickname to do with a guinea pig. So what sort of pulsar is this? Is it just a run-of-the-mill common old garden pulsar or has it got anything particularly interesting about it? Yeah, so this pulsar is interesting actually. So it's got a period of 32 milliseconds and we therefore put it into our MSP, millisecond pulsar class. But what's really special about this pulsar is that it's actually in a binary system. That means that it's orbiting around another star. We don't know what that other object is yet, but it has a binary period, which means the time for it to go around its orbit once is approximately 32 days. What day was this pulsar discovered on out of the three? So this candidate was flagged, I believe, on the first evening, but it takes a while for obviously we were going through a list of ranked candidates. And so on the second day, we'd been through our list and we found this, thanks to the public. And we then did a follow-up on the Wednesday night, which was the second show. So during the filming of the show, there was a follow-up observation of this source. And that's how this turned out to be a real pulsar. I'll just add that this particular candidate was classified by, I think, at least 30 different people. And so thank you to those 30 people specifically, whoever you may be. I think their names are on the website. Yeah, so on the website now, there is a link to the actual candidate that turned out to be this real pulsar, uh, along with the names of those people that did classify it. Would there have always been able to be a live follow-up on the show of the Pulsar? Or was it quite lucky that this one was where it was in the sky? It was very lucky that it happened to be in the sky at the time of the show because obviously the night sky moves around. So it just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Fantastic television. Yes. (laughs) And also on this night, you appeared on the television as well. I did. So can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, so on on the Wednesday, we'd had very little sleep from the night before. We'd been going through all of the comments on the candidates, as well as going through our uh, candidate lists. And so I was asked to be on the show. So during the follow-up, the controller switched the telescope to move to the pulsar. And meanwhile, me and Rene, who uh, set up all of this idea, were in the control room also and we were whilst the show was live we were checking the candidates uh, more of the candidates to see if there were any more pulsars in the data and were there so what the public did was give us this ranked list and one of those turned out to be this new pulsar and also there were maybe 10 to 15 more really good candidates that we have been in the process of following up also they might not turn out to be anything real but we're going to follow them all up too And I'm sure the website will update with any more results as they come. Yeah, definitely check out the website still. There are results about the discovery as well as there will be more information. So is Pulsar Hunters definitely going to be an ongoing thing? Are we going to upload more data from this survey, data from other surveys? At the moment that's an unknown, but there is definitely a lot of scope to be done with citizen science for Pulsar Hunters. It might not be with that specific survey, it could be another survey... 
other groups around the world could want to do this. So there are other citizen science projects for pulsar hunting around the world. There's one specifically in America with Green Bank Telescope, who actually use um, schools. So they go around as part of outreach to teach them about pulsars and as well how to classify them. And they become part of the classification process and discovery process. So while we were doing this, we were learning ourselves what the most efficient way to classify these pulsars was and what the best way of looking through the candidates was. How would you change what information is presented to the public in the future? Or how would you change pulsar hunters to make it more efficient? Is there anything that we actually learn yeah, while doing this experiment? definitely. Um, pulsar hunters on Zooniverse was a first. To have pulsar classification on Zooniverse was a first. And so what we gave the public was a limited view of what we would really call a candidate. So I talked about the profile and the time versus phase. There is other data associated with each candidate that we can represent within different figures, which we didn't show the public. And actually what we found by the public discussing individual candidates was that they caught on very quickly to what these plots meant. I was astonished, actually, at the response we got back during the sort of talk, as it's called, on the website. They began teaching each other. Exactly, so... they then teach each other. And so what might be a way forward in the future is to say, well, OK, when you're new to the site, you get what was we showed originally, which is the profile and the phase versus time. But then maybe once you get so many classifications right we then give you an upgraded version and say, okay, now here's the frequency plot too. And then those people that then get those classifications right, we can then say, okay, this is all the data we have about this pulsar. And then they, they learn and they become our expert classifiers. So now that the first iteration of pulsar hunters is done and completed and was a success, what's your role going to be for, for the next few weeks or months? Uh, so currently I am in the process of writing up my PhD. So in the immediate future, I will be concentrating mainly on that and hopefully becoming a doctor. That would be nice. How far off that are you? Around three months. Ah, so at time of listening, you'll still be working on it? Yeah. But I'm sure we can have you back for another interview after you become <laughs> a doctor. I can, and I can tell you what I found. Oh, excellent. excellent. Thank you very much. Well, I just wanted to say also a big thank you to everybody that's listening to this that also went onto the Pulsar Hunters website and classified, because without them, this wouldn't have been possible at all. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for that, Sally. Charlie and Ben, who are here with me in the studio, uh, had many late nights that week, uh, staying up uh, looking for pulsars and, and interacting with all the, all the pulsar hunters on the Zooniverse website. Uh, guys, you want to maybe share your experiences in sleep deprivation? Yeah, we, we locked ourselves in the Lovell Seminar Room here at JBCA in Manchester. We set ourselves up with some snacks. We got our laptops around a table. We had the big screen set up, ready to watch the show live. And as soon as the Pulsar Zoo project was mentioned, usage of the site spiked and we began basically going through the forums and looking at what people have said and responded to them, looking at certain pulsars. Pulling up the interesting candidates. Pulling up the interesting candidates telling people what they were seeing, what they weren't seeing, why what they thought they were seeing was right and wrong, and why basically so talking to the reply. public as, as they were classifying. And traffic on the website didn't start to decrease until well after the show had ended. It and was funny, actually... you could literally see whenever someone mentioned the words Pulsar Hunters because the website would then crash, <laughs> at least for the yeah. very first night. 
Yeah, there were a few database errors. I think I don't think people were quite expecting that popularity to spike in quite the way that it did. And um, I think we ended up with, was it 1.2 million classifications in the first few hours, mm. uh, which was fantastic. And by the end of the show, 3.5 million? Was yeah, that? yeah. Um, and by the end of it, um, well, we finished at about 2.30 in the morning um, and we sort of slowly staggered our way home. Mm, yeah. um, and we're back in for very early the next day to, to carry on. So it was it was a long night, but it was a good night. It was fun. It was tiring. And um, we got some interviews as well. Uh, we did. So apologies for any ineloquence on our part. <laughs> so here, uh, coming up now, is an interview with uh, Brooke Simmons, who's part of the Zooniverse team. And, and um, they're the ones who set up the whole kind of infrastructure for these citizen science projects to be, to, to be possible. Um, so this interview was done on the Wednesday of Stargazing Live Week, so with two more days to go. And um, I think both interviewer and interviewee are both fairly sleep-deprived at this point. So enjoy. I'm Ben. I'm here with Indy, and we're interviewing a very sleep-deprived Einstein fellow from the University of California, San Diego, Brooke Simmons. Brooke has been involved in the Pulsar Zoo project, which has been launched from Jodrell Bank over the course of Stargazing Live 2016. Brooke, how are you feeling? Sorry, what, what time is it? <laughs> we don't know either. I don't. We were Where just am I? As late. <laughs> Possibly not quite as late as you. Um, but you've been involved in the Pulsar Zoo project. Mm. Um, over the course of this week. What is it your what's your background though? So my background is actually in AGN, Active Galactic Nuclei, um, which I think your listeners are fairly familiar with. I think they probably yes. will be. Yeah. Um, uh, so I actually study black holes and galaxies and how they grow together. Um, and so pulsars are pretty new for me, but citizen science in this university is not. I've been with this universe for several years now. So um, I'm really interested in this partially because pulsars are awesome. But also because this is a, a new kind of rapid live analysis that um, we've started doing with Stargazing Live. And actually, it has a lot of other applications, not just astrophysics. There's lots of applications for transients and things in astrophysics. Um, but also, uh, I'm working on a disaster relief project with this universe, and we've run some small projects. Um, but that is also live, right? You, you get... The earthquake, say, happens in Nepal, say, um, this happened last year, and um, it doesn't matter where you are, if you're driving through the roaming countryside of France, say, because that happened to me too, anyway, um, and you just go, we have to run a project, so you have to put it all together really quickly, you have to, you know, use the project builder that we have on Zooniverse to make your own citizen science project, we can do that now, um, and then collect the classifications and analyze them within hours. And it doesn't actually matter in some respects, whether it's a pulsar, whether it's, mm. you know, Earth observations, whether where the satellite is pointing is irrelevant. Mm. Um, so that's part of why I'm here. And also, you know, I've, I've been in this universe for a while, and this is a thing that we get to do every year. Um, and I've always had other things that I couldn't be here for. And it always made me really sad. So this year, I just sort of informed people that I would be here. <laughs> and they said, well, yes, if you're willing to write some code and do some data analysis, let's do that. So, so the Zooniverse has expanded massively since it's begun. Initially, it was just Galaxy Zoo, and mm. now there's so many projects you can do, as you said, not just related to astrophysics. What has your role been across the, across the evolution of the Zooniverse from the very beginning? Well, my first role was in Galaxy Zoo as a volunteer, actually. Um, I was a PhD student when that came out, and I was working on AGN host galaxy morphologies, and I remember at some point thinking, you know, I just look at this and I do this, and otherwise I have to fit all these functions to the thing, and it's really 
tricky and sometimes inaccurate and whatever. And I still have to, wouldn't it be nice if we could, but I never did anything with it. And, you know, so I was, when Galaxy Zoo came out, I went, that's the best idea. Yes, that, that thing. <laughs> and so I logged on and did a bunch of classifications, um, but I didn't really jump into the community because I felt like I shouldn't interfere. Like I'm a scientist and I don't want to like tread over the, the toes of people who are, you know, the science team. So I just kind of, hung back but was always a fan and then many years later I got the opportunity to join the science team and so of course I jumped at it and it was great and really fun and it was a, that was about a year year and a half before I got the job at Oxford which was my previous position to this so I joined the Zooniverse team officially when I started that so I've been with the Zooniverse for almost four years now so I initially came in as a Galaxy Zoo science postdoc um, but the, the first thing that you learn when you work with this universe is just how distracting it is. There's always interesting projects. There's always people coming in who are like, you know, the United Nations wants to meet with you about a potential. And you're like, oh, <laughs> let's do that then. You know, I can tell them about Why galaxies. Not? Or, yeah, you know, uh, Brian May is coming by today. Should we show him the gravitational lens project or whatever? Because yes. our, our PI knows Brian May. <laughs> and Brian May is an astrophysicist. So why wouldn't yeah. you do that, right? Um, and so I got involved in the sort of general organization stuff and just you know thinking a lot about citizen science in general and how you make best use of the efforts that the volunteers give us because they're you know really interested in in contributing to science and we want to honor that as much as we can and um, then I got involved in running a disaster relief project and I still do that for some part of my time but most of it's still astrophysics I've managed to retain that so a lot of people in this universe end up you know, becoming programmers or something, mm -hmm. go off and work for Google or GitHub or something. Mm -hmm. um, several of our of our best friends in this universe have done that, and they're doing really, really well. So you can do anything you want to in this universe, actually. <laughs> How has it grown in terms of the number of people involved in this universe in terms of um, postdocs and staff and people actually employed solely? to look at the universe project. So we've got, oh gosh, I don't know the actual number, but it's in the dozens, like 20 maybe, like, yeah, uh, of total staff who are developers primarily, so mm. people who write our software, um, which is all open source, by the way. And um, so they are split between Chicago and Oxford as home base, but actually a lot of them are in various places and come into the office one or two days a week. Um, in terms of postdoc effort, in terms of like science postdoc efforts, I was actually the first science postdoc employed by Galaxy Zoo. Um, we have generally gotten our science done by getting other grants, not from the Zooniverse itself, but from like a science team will get a grant to do, you know, the science. Mm -hmm. And then they do a Zooniverse project, but, you know, that's where the money comes from, so they're hired by them. So there haven't been that many science postdocs, actually, in the Zooniverse, which mm -hmm. is fine, um, because the projects are so diverse. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we now have, you know, many, many more projects than we used to, and, you know, we couldn't support that. So it's good that other teams are, are getting their own science done, basically. Last night we launched... PulsarHunters.org, which mm -hmm. is a brand new addition to the Zooniverse, right. where users can search through Pulsar data looking for new examples of Pulsars. Um, how have you found transferring to Pulsar research for <laughs> the purposes of PulsarHunters.org? Well, I have a lot to learn about radio astronomy, I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> I, I find so do we, and we're radio astronomers. <laughs> it's, it's little things, too. I mean, I'm an extragalactic astronomer, and so when we've been talking about sharing and positions and figuring out how to, to tell the difference between interference and a known pulsar that we just got something slightly off and so we didn't realize right away and so forth, they're like the, the coordinates are in galactic, and I'm like, 
Oh, right. <laughs> That's a thing. Um, you know, it's been little things like that. And then larger things like I don't know how to recognize a microwave from a, you know, a plane pulsar, flying over yeah. from a pulsar. I don't know how to do that, um, except for what I've learned over the course of designing this. So um, that's been really humbling in a way, um, but still really fun. Mm-hmm. And it's good to interface with that. And, you know, it's been fun also to watch our moderators jumping in because yeah. they're likewise, our, our moderators are really experienced and are actually really good in extra galactic stuff and have been published on some of those papers. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are like, okay, pulsars, let's yeah. do this. And it's, it's really been fun to watch that too. So you were here last night for the launch. Yeah. Um, we were at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics in Manchester behind the scenes of PulsarZoo.org looking at the candidates that people had flagged as possible pulsars. Um, none of us got any sleep, Nope. really. Give us a, an idea of how your evening went from start to finish <laughs> last night. <laughs> well, it was, it was pretty sort of ticking along and like we expected not i'm not going to say slow because we knew where we were going and exactly what we were doing and then all of a sudden it was like it is happening right now and it was a little bit of a kind of right let's not panic exactly but let's do this um (laughs) i mean we knew the launch was coming and so we were we were trying to prepare for that and scale all of our servers and things of course you can never quite prepare for that so you always expect things will go to we had a bet actually in this universe and there was a there was a betting board with how many people we thought would log in in the first hour how many classifications we thought we'd get in the first hour and what was the thing that was going to fail because every year it's something and then you fix that thing and then the next year something else and so you make the yeah. make the software better every year and it's fine mm-hmm. and so the, the key that you're trying to do is to just have it fail for very very little time mm-hmm. or not noticeably and in this case it wasn't too bad so who um, won that bet i think it was our head Backend developer, um, yeah, who who Could predicted. Say he had an advantage though in what was like I mean, to fail. so I think yes and no. I think partially he was going, yeah, I won, but it was my stuff that broke. So <laughs> so he wasn't actually that happy about it. I think, uh, but it's fine, right? It's just, you always start testing and trying to increase capabilities. It's actually a great opportunity from a development standpoint for the coders to be able to say, well, let's have a massive load test mm-hmm. in a live situation that's doing real science and it's really cool and it's, it, it matters. So it's really it's really good to have that opportunity yeah, from that perspective. So Pulsar Zoo was announced at 9.42, we were told. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and then the website traffic spiked. The program <laughs> finished, I think, about half past 10 in the evening. Something like that. What happened for the rest of the evening and what time did you finally get to bed? Right. So I should... Can I back up a half an hour? Because there yeah. was a fun moment there. Well, like, so this is my first time on a TV set of yeah. any kind. Yeah. Um, and everybody's got all of these routines and, and there's all this jargon flying around that I do not understand at all. And there was a moment when... when Chris, um, who announced the project, you know, who's the one who said pulsarhunters.org, and, and um, then he goes to the, what's it called, Back to Earth, the program yep. that's after Stargazing Live, yep. which is, he has to be live on camera for a half an hour, and at some point, they're going to say, Chris, how's it going? And he needs to know. So he said, well, you have to come in and hold up a number on a piece of paper, and you have to come in as late as possible, because we want the most up-to-date numbers. Um but there's only a very specific time window when I will be able to just look for you because there's one moment where we're going to go to a pre-recorded thing and it's only two minutes long. Wow. Lucy Green's going to have a thing and she's going to talk for two minutes. She's pre- Okay, so when you hear Lucy's voice and a pre-recorded thing, run. 
And he gave me the sheet of paper that was like, this is what the schedule is. But he just sort of casually flung it at me and said, here you go. And it's got a bunch of timings on it, but it doesn't. I said, can you just tell me, point at the clock and tell me what time? And he said, no, we don't We don't know because it's live TV. Things might change, whatever. In fact, this whole schedule might change. I was like, why did you give it to me then? <laughs> and so, so there was a moment there where I was, and of course, there's no Wi-Fi here, right? Because the thing I would ordinarily do would be just to go into the TV studio with my laptop and just hold up the laptop, sure. but I can't do that. I have yeah. to have a tether. So um, so that was fun. I was sort of running between the rooms going, she's not on yet. Okay, go back, see what the number is. She's not on yet. Go back, see what the number is. So that was fun. Um, and then once it finished, I mean, Chris had said, again, go to pulsarhunters.org. Yeah. And then, um, so we got another spike in traffic when that happened. <laughs> and the developers went, oh my God, it's so much on the server. Um, so we spent most of the first part of that night um, just trying to make sure everything was going to stay up and marveling at how fast the classifications were coming in. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what happened was it, at first the database sort of it fell behind. It was so busy doing the work of recording the classifications that it wasn't telling us how many it had. Mm-hmm. So I, I am continually amazed by, this is going to sound random, I'm continually amazed by how difficult it is to find the distance to anything in the Milky Way. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not intuitive that that would be much, much more difficult than finding the distance to another galaxy. Yeah. But of course it is, and I understand yeah. why, etc. But likewise, I'm sometimes amazed by how difficult it is to just find out the size of the database. Like, <laughs> how is it that hard? But when the database is really overloaded, that's actually not an easy question when it's yeah. changing very quickly, etc. So we thought there was a fairly low classification rate, and then once the database started to report everything we'd had, it started going up really, really fast. Wow. And so then we started to realize, okay, we actually are going to hit our target of a million classifications. Yeah. So we went from going, oh my God, what's happening? And sort of, this is, are we, is this going badly? Do we, and then very quickly just going, oh no, this is actually going really, really well. And <laughs> they're finding things and talk is, talk is up and everybody's on talk and, and, and discussing the candidates and things. And yeah. so we ended up, um, we ended up in the bar <clears throat> at the, at the hotel where all the crew is staying. And I had my laptop. And Chris was going around with his laptop and going, look what we think we might have found. And, and, and everybody kept checking in and seeing how it was going. And great. yeah. Um, and I guess we closed the bar. I don't really remember what time it was at that point. Um, you closed the bar. Uh, <laughs> Drink it dry. Yeah. Yeah. They, I, well, they ran out of, out of normal tonic. Oh, I had to drink slimline tonic. I mean, the sacrifices I make for science, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, it was fine. So by that point, we knew that, that okay, we have data. We probably have enough data to do mm. something. We thought that if there was a candidate that came out really, really clearly, mm. that we could send that to the people here and they could observe it overnight if it was up. Mm. But that didn't quite work out with coordinates and the, the sources and stuff. So, fine. We said, okay. We'll run the aggregation stuff and we'll just do it in the morning. Um, so the, the team in Oxford who they'd been up with us and were all in their office kind of huddled around their computers. Um, they ran all this stuff that I had needed them to, to send the data to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they went to sleep and then I theoretically set the code running and went to sleep. But then of course I couldn't sleep. Because I kept going, oh, you know what? I need to do this thing. And, oh, I forgot this. And I should set this up so it's done by 7.30 because there's a script meeting and they want to know what's been found and stuff. So I think I think I went to bed at 5. I'm not really sure. And you were back here at Jodrell Bank by... Oh, well, I was up by 7.30... 
But we sort of then had a series of like, must do this, must do this, must do this. So we couldn't deal with the like half hour bus ride or, you know, whatever to get here, even though it, it's massively better to be here because the wired ethernet is very, very fast mm, yeah. <laughs> compared to the hotel Wi-Fi. Not great. Yeah. Um, so I actually didn't even get here till lunch because then I was so busy catching up on what had been done and what I needed to do and organizing stuff. Um, yeah, but... So day two of Stargazing Live 2016 is going out tonight. Yes. What will you be doing? So it's a good question, and it depends on what the broadcast is going to do. I don't think we found out yet. Um, the, this thing about live TV, they just... <laughs> I mean, they, up, they, they, they script as much of it as they can, but to yeah. some extent they have to make it up as they go along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you may well be placed on athletic duties again. When it's possible. You know, it's possible I'm going to be one of those people in the back of the room that is just a prop as a person, because that's happened in previous years, although I don't think that'll happen today. Um, it's possible we'll be trying to observe a source. Mm. And so in that case, I'll be, I might be running in and like feeding coordinates to Chris again. Um, and it's entirely possible that we're going to put in totally new data um, because we, I think we heard that there might be a new source of data as well. So we might have another set from which to discover Pulsar. So that would be cool. If that's the case, then we're going to be like, oh, we have to get the data into the database yeah. right now. Yeah. Like, right, we should already be doing it. Yeah. Um, and so that might be a bit a bit mad. But it'll probably be the same type of thing. I'm refining the scripts that we're using to detect things, and um, sure. I'll be running those. Are you guys ready for another big spike whenever it gets mentioned on air? Or? Well, so we think we know what went wrong yesterday, right? The, okay, the, yeah. the small thing. And so we're just waiting for the next thing, whatever that will be. <laughs> yeah. I think the funniest thing about this is that part of the reason it broke is that this classification is pretty easy. And so people can do it really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so you just get a lot more classifications per second than for other projects. And that's a, that's a pretty heavy load. But that's good, right? Because yeah, it means the project is a success. Success, mm-hmm. yeah. So do you expect us to have a brand new Pulsar discovered by this evening? Oh, I wouldn't like to predict. <laughs> I wouldn't like to predict because who knows? I, You know, we, we've got a lot of candidates to go through. Mm-hmm. So I am really hoping. And I think based on the statistics, my understanding is that there is an expectation we might find a few yeah um so let us hope that we are average in terms of the statistics <laughs> right and we find a few yeah. and and i will hold out a sort of very distant hope for brian's wish of finding a pulsar of orbiting a black hole that would be very that cool. would be very cool very much like um that. yeah you never know <laughs> we discovered a really really cool planet the mm-hmm. year that planet hunters was on stargazing live so yeah. we never know nobel prize might be yours <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> give it to me. <laughs> I'm just the data monkey. We'll have to try and get your reaction uh, once we once the pulsar has been found because we're positive. That's right. We're optimistic on the job. Stand there so. with, the, with the microphone, and I can go. Oh, no beep beep beep. <laughs> I'm too sleep deprived. See. Oh yeah. Well, join the club. <laughs> well, Brooke, thanks very much for joining us on the Jodcast. I thanks. hope Thank you. you have a successful night. Me too. And you too. Um, I hope yeah, we all hope, do. Uh, you turn up for work tomorrow here somewhat less sleep <laughs> Sure. That's likely. <laughs> thanks very much. Thanks. So thanks again to Brooke Simmons for that interview. And after that, we were sort of hanging around in the tea room and, and there was a screen where we could watch the stargazing rehearsals on, which was actually very, very amusing. Um, and while we were sort of waiting for more people to be available to interview, uh, Matt Taylor, the 
uh, Rosetta mission lead, uh, popped his head in the tea room to well, presumably look for some tea, but also maybe to see who was around. Char- well, he recognized Charlie from the last time we'd managed to interview him, and, and so we managed to grab him for, for a five-minute interview, which turned into a 35-minute interview um, and was uh, almost a rehearsal for his uh, for his stargazing life bit. So um, here you go. There's a long, in-depth interview with Matt Taylor about the current status and the immediate future of the Rosetta mission. So today we're behind the scenes at Stargazing Live at George Bank Observatory, and we're joined once again by Matt Taylor. Welcome to Jogcast. Thank you for having me. You've been on here once before. Yeah. We found you twice, but we haven't put that episode up yet. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> I get around a bit. So have you been doing quite a bit of outreach recently, ever since Rosetta blew up? Um, well, well, pretty uh, poor yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so far it's yeah, it hasn't done that yet. Uh, but no, no, I know what you mean. It has uh, a certain popularity associated with the mission, and uh, much more than any of us really considered. For one reason, I, this is the second time I've been on Stargazing Live. I don't think I would have been on Stargazing Live for the other missions I've worked on, um, although I should do because they're fantastic missions. But Rosetta has something that uh, certainly people are interested in. Maybe the peak of interest was in 2014 because of Philae, but 2015 has seen Rosetta doing a lot of fantastic science, continues to do science, and now we're extended, and now we're actually in the extended mission in 2016. So we're going on to the end of Rosetta, and... I actually wrote it in an email today that for me personally, I think this year is going to be pretty hectic for Rosetta in that we're going to get as close as physically possible to the comet with uh, the Rosetta spacecraft. Is this extended mission uh, extended targets that you might not have actually reached, but because the experiments performed admirably, we've now come to the point where we can do some extra stuff? We were nominally, well, the nominal mission was funded until the end of December 2015. That was based on a particular timeline ages ago, uh, before launch, uh, really. And yeah, with the science, you couldn't say no, I think. And uh, and we've ultimately, I mean, it's only a small uh, extension for, for nine months up to September this year. Uh, but still, it's pretty good. So what were some of the highlights of 2015? Well, we had perihelion in August, so we got to our closest approach in the sun with the most activity of the comet. Uh, and that's, you know, so we when we first arrived at the comet, we're talking about, I don't know, 300 grams of material flying off per second, and that went up to tons of material flying off in August. Uh, we had a nice show from the comet um, in terms of the amount of this, this material, how it was coming off. In fact, this material, well, the dust and, and, the, and the gas was causing a problem for us navigationally. So in March last year, we actually had to go further away from the comet than we expected. Uh, and in the end, we spent a lot of time last year over 100 kilometers away from the comet, which is okay, but we would prefer to be closer. And that was one of the fundamental points of coming into the extension in 2016. When the activity dies away, that we'll be able to get super close, uh, back up close and personal with the comet to, to really have a look at it and really, really find out what's going on in that, in that near-comet environment, because that's the key for the science. Although... <laughs> In spite of all, of that, in spite of not being able to get close, we've still done a lot of stuff. And when you see the ground-based images, the, the the you can't see the nucleus. You know, we're right we're right in the middle of all of that stuff that you're seeing. And I think some of the images that um, I was given or have passed on today for stargazing from uh, uh, Alan Fitzsimmons and uh, Colin Snodgrass, I've got some stuff in Tenerife, Liverpool Telescope, and Newton Telescope showing this the comet from the ground. I think only last week or even this week. The, the tail of the comet's millions of kilometers now. Uh, you know, it was, we'd, we, I remember saying it's 150,000 kilometers, thinking that's quite big, but now it's millions. It's, it's, it's huge. Of course, comet tails can go 
much, much bigger than that, I think. Mm-hmm. Memory serves correct. Ulysses detected one that was something like, was it over three AU in extent? So yeah, they can get quite big, but this one, see, seeing that, that, you know, seeing it from the ground kind of then puts you, you know, when you put it into context that, that Rosetta's still in the middle of all of that, it, it still blows my mind. And how much of the comet's material has actually been lost in the tail? Because such a long tail, that's a lot of stuff. How long does it take before the comet shrinks? To nothing. Well, I mean, the thing's 10 billion tons. Uh, so if it's losing a couple of tons of material, you know, every uh, uh, apparition, of course, that, you know, that there is a big peak in activity and it drops down again. Mm-hmm. And that material is loosely bound in orbit with the, uh, with the comet. That tail grows because this, you know, there's, there's a, a distillation, as it were, gravitationally of this stuff and, and it gets dragged around the orbit. We see that with all comets as well. You get some very nice light shows every now and again of this stuff re-entering from different, uh, comets. But that's, you know, that's the formation of the tail. In fact, when we first arrived at the comet in 2014, we were seeing some of the dust that had been emitted the last apparition that was kind of bound loosely to the orbit, you know, it was outside of about, two, I think it was about 150 kilometers. We were seeing this stuff that was just with the comet that had been, is in the same orbit. So it's ejected and then kind of hasn't got enough energy to do much more than hang around in the same orbit and you get these massive debris trails that we pass through on uh, with the earth on uh, with other comets every now, every now and again has rosetta ever passed through the tail itself uh this is something we are doing uh at march april time period we'll actually fly into the tail which for some people isn't as interesting so some some instruments because we're going further away it's you know it's not really what they want to do um maybe some of the images won't be as striking but for me they will be. Uh, the, one of the main drivers was for, to look at the plasma interaction, actually, to, to, to go through the tail in any way to see what that tail environment is like. Again, there's this, from the plasma perspective, you look at this as a non-magnetized body that's being interacted with a plasma with a magnetic field, and you can see how that evolves. You can see what kind of phenomena are occurring, which can be applied to all over the universe, effectively. Uh, and so that will be interesting to see what the, the effects that we see on the, on the tail side. I, we had hoped maybe to see some kind of reconnection or anything like that, that you'd see when you have a, a, a body in the supersonic flow that is the solar wind, you tend to get similar phenomena depending, well, there, there are lots of differences, but you'll get things drape, you'll get the magnetic field draping around the comet, you'll get these plasma interactions and these boundary waves forming, and we want to see what they're doing in the tail, and possibly you see reconnection or merging of magnetic fields, but just generally seeing that phenomena, that dynamic interaction in a, in a different place. To be honest with you, one thing I'm actually interested in is to see if there'll be a change in the way that some of the dust is behaving as well near the spacecraft. Because we see, it may, it may not actually, but there are lots of things going on around the spacecraft that are perturbing measurements. And one of them, we think, may be that we're having dust particles actually broken up by the effect of the spacecraft being in the solar wind, that it actually causes a, a kind of um, electric charge around itself. And you have this uh, electrostatic potential, which may be destroying dust particles and making them break up and maybe preventing some of them from getting near the sensors. So there's all things like that that we, that when you're in different locations, you may get different effects occurring. So we're interested to see what those kind of things will be going on. But once we've done that, we'll come back, we'll hopefully do another flyby uh, near to the comet, and then we'll gradually spiral closer and closer to the comet over the subsequent months up to September. Will there also be a little bit of actual pressure when passing through the tail? Will that will you have to keep a close eye on your navigational systems? The main problem we'll have actually is we are restricted in terms of the, all the navigation is done with being able to see the comet. So that's actually the key thing is mm. we have to see some part of the comet. Some so so we couldn't fly it 
we couldn't go through Eclipse for one thing because that that's just not possible. Um, it's a bit too dangerous to not allow the spacecraft to have any power. But really, the navigation is done with... The, we have to see a certain part of the comet. And, of course, when you're on the tail side, you don't see much of the comet. So there are certain things that have restricted us as to what we're, we're doing. We would, yeah, so as I say, I think the eclipse is the main thing that we want to try and avoid. But in terms of perturbation on uh, the spacecraft, it should be minimal because we're going, I think it's a good couple of hundred kilometers down tail. So most of the activity, most of the, the, the action is occurring on the day side. So it's kind of, we'll see the contrary to that, but we hope to see some other interesting phenomena. And while Rosetta is doing all these cool measurements, what's, what's Philae? Can be up to, or what is Philae up to now? Well, since July, so we had uh, after the landing, it went into hibernation, and we heard a peep out of it, a couple of peeps in uh, June of 2015. We had a couple of those up until July, and that was the last time we heard from it. So you have it's a bit like well, it's it's Schrodinger's cat really, uh, but we can't lift the box and have a look. <laughs> it could be alive, uh, and it, yeah, it really is. In this, there's there's this duality about it. You could explain the fact that we haven't heard from it in the fact that, yeah, we were very far away, uh, it was highly active, it may have been covered in dust, so it's more difficult for the signals to get through. It could be that in July it just stopped functioning completely. There were some issues with uh, the transmitter chain. Um, so, as I say, we heard, we don't know anything since July. Uh, we were in the right kind of position in the last month or so to hear from it. We did There was something, or something went on in uh, December on board Rosetta, but we think that was due to the fact that we're actually kind of playing with the uh, the antenna that listens for the lander. So we think we it just she heard something, something else. else. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So we gained interference from something else that was could be mistaken for a signal from the lander. So yeah, ultimately we haven't heard anything. And to be honest with you, given that we'd gone below a hundred kilometers, and in June July we were at you know between 100 and 200 we were in the right place at the right time at the right altitude and still didn't hear anything kind of makes you think well it's unlikely it's still functioning but we were still trying things so we we're still try- or the lander team were commanding things even though they had no response so they do the the the, fun- the functionality of the system was such that you kind of handshake so you you ping and then you have a ping back and then you say right okay we're in contact with one another now we send commands after July, when we weren't getting this response, they started doing things called commanding in the blind, so they'll send signals down without requiring to hear from the lander. And that happened a few times, and we've never really heard anything back to indicate that something, you know, something was responding. Certainly there's, well, there's a, there's an instrument on both uh, the orbiter and the lander called a concert, which is like a radio tomography experiment, and you can command that and get a signal from it separate from the other chain. That didn't do anything either. So there are things kind of once you add all that up together, indicates that maybe it might uh, be dead, <laughs> eternally asleep. Yes, <laughs> I mean this is the thing. So yeah, it's yeah. I mean it was in a, a dodgy situation. It was you know it was on its side. It was it's not the best place to be. Although mm-hmm. for for coming into long term science, let me put it that way. But it was great for the science ultimately. At, through the landing uh, week because it was in a place that we could have never have wished to aim for because uh, it was really primordial. The stuff there 
was very different. We got to sample two very different regions on the comet up close, which was really good. Did you expect there to be two regions that were so different? Um, well, I mean, we could see even from, well, before August when we got to 100 kilometres in 2014, you knew that they had this diverse uh, morphology and terrain on the comet, and that's become ingrained in all of our minds now. You see all these differences. But actually being able to say, well, we'll land there, then we'll skim across here, and then we'll end up in this hole on the side that's got a completely different appearance and different maybe physics and chemistry, I'd say all the physics uh, is different that has produced those uh, that environment uh, was fantastic. Although you know, on the other side, we, we we weren't able to do some other experiments, but it's very popular. It has been popular, and there's still a lot of science to be done. Even with that, whatever it is, only sixty hours of uh, data in total. Uh, you know, some of those instruments were only sampling a little bit of that, but there's still stuff to be done just on the lander. And so as, as, it, as it gets closer to its sort of swan song, uh, what is the science you're going to be focusing on when you get closer and closer and closer than you've been before? Well, be, not being able to get close means uh, you. Uh, what you have is when you have this stuff emitting, so you have these volatiles, these, these ices sublimating into gas, and the, the, the chemistry within those molecules evolves. It, the, the molecules break down, so you have parent and daughter molecules, and they evolve just from you know from an altitude perspective. As they're going out, they'll change, and so getting closer, you start looking at the parent. What 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 were the source of some of these molecules? Also, how the coma works. So how the how this sublimation process and this um, ejection of material. What is this? Well, they call it the acceleration region. It's very close to the comet, within about a few uh, radii of the comet. Getting to sample that properly, hopefully we can do that. But really it's getting as close as possible because then your signal-to-noise ratio for some of the in-situ measurements will be fantastic, in particular the mass spectrometer. Now we've had some fantastic results from from that instrument. Uh, they really are hitting some of the, you know, the, the primordial target you know, or, or the... How can I put it? The origins of the solar system type question. So looking at, well, the, we had this uh, deuterium to hydrogen ratio measurement, looking at the different types of water, which first, was the first indication that this comet was likely not to be similar or to have been connected to the Earth, because there's all this big question about what, what has delivered life, what has delivered, or the building blocks of life, what has delivered water to Earth. Maybe, well, this was showing that this particular comet or, or its friends, or the comet and its friends, it, it, this class of comet, may be uh, not a predominant uh, delivery mechanism of water to Earth, although there is a complication there because there are other members of its family. It's a Jupiter-class comet that Herschel showed to have water similar to Earth. But there was that, that was the first thing that was basically saying, well, the key point of this water measurement was it showed that the comet was very old. It was a Kuiper Belt object. It had been on the outskirts of the solar system for a long time. Then there were a number of other molecules it, it was looking at. It actually found argon as well, and, and that was showing that it's old, that it's been out on the outskirts. Um, nitrogen measurements were also saying the same thing, uh, kind of disconnecting it from Earth, actually, quite a bit. Then, most recently, we showed that, um, that molecular oxygen was on the comet, and quite a lot of it, compared to what you may expect from general cosmological chemical uh, evolution, you know, oxygen reacts quite readily with everything. So why are you getting this persistent source of oxygen from the comet? Basically showed us that for it to be there, or the conclusion of the paper was, it had to have been there from the beginning. So it hasn't been generated through reaction of radiation from the sun, etc., uh, with water. It's actually, that was embedded in the protoplanetary disk. And also that for that to happen, you had to maybe tweak your models of how the protoplanetary disk was working to form the sun. So that was a real we're getting real primordial material on there. And then they use that result, so I'm going on quite a bit about the Rosetta instrument, but they're a cool, they're a cool result. So you've got yeah. this molecular oxygen, and then they use that result to go back to Giotto results. 
on Halley and showed that actually the, uh, because the instrument on Rosetta is better than the one on uh, Giotto, they were able to say, well, there was that peak in the mass spectra. Now, given the context that we have and the measurements on Rosetta or from Rosetta, go back to that and show that Halley appeared to have oxygen as well. And that really throws into the mix that you say, well, okay, these Jupiter-class comets like 67P with Rosetta appear to have, or at least this one has got molecular oxygen and quite a bit of it. You could extrapolate and say maybe a lot more of them have. Then now you find a completely different comet, Halley, has got that type of, or has got molecular oxygen on it as well. And so it's kind of, again, looking at these, um, what we call the origins questions, how the solar system formed. Well, they're big questions, and uh, we started to tick them off. And actually today, there's a release. I'll better jump into another instrument quickly. Uh, we've been looking at how the, how the comet works, how this... Um, Emission of uh, volatile, so all this gas. How, how does it? How do you make a comet into a comet? So it's not an asteroid; it's a comet because it's got all of this stuff kicking off, all this dust and gas coming off it as it goes closer to the sun. How does that activity? How is it driven? How does it work? And so you think, well, we need to see some ice. Or how, how does that work? How does the ice transfer into a gas? And, and we've seen with the Virtus instrument, which is an infrared instrument, but also the the Osiris camera. Evidence of surface ice certainly. Well, with Osiris first, you can see these bright patches. So they might be ice. You need Virtus, an infrared experiment, to look at the emissivity, you know, to look at the spectra of, of that, to say, well, actually, yes, it's definitely ice. You can you can only do it with uh, with an infrared spectrometer. So we've identified, and there'll be there's a Nature paper coming out this evening that basically says, yes, we've seen ice. We've we've completely uh, identified it. And that instrument, uh, Virtus, was also looking at how you s uh, a water cycle on the comet as well. And this came out a couple of months ago. In that, for some of the dust layers, dusty layers. That kind of shields or retains the heat a little bit on the surface of the comet. So you'll get heat injected. You'll, you'll start heating up, um, volatiles. So the ice underneath the surface or within the surface, that starts sublimating. The ice becomes gas and starts flowing off. That continues though when you go into the cold because of this dust layer. And so you retain some heat and that continues. And then what you end up doing is refilling the surface and causing kind of frost effect on the surface because this gas is being emitted even when you're on the dark side. And of course, the surface drops temperature very quick, even though the internal is still warm. So you get this temperature gradient, and actually you get a frost layer. And so you see that there's a cycling of the surface layer of ice on, on, on the comet, but only in certain regions. It's in the neck region where it's very dusty. But then on the, the bum or the bottom or the belly of the duck, I should say, <laughs> we have these more defined regions of ice that are caused by these big cliff features. Um, what was it? Talus, is it? I can't remember the geological term. So basically you've got like um, rock falls, for want of a better term, and you see this ice coming from these cliff faces, and there is a different set of... Um, well, it's a different process in action there to, mm -hmm. to generate, again, this activity. So, so it's, it seems to be like a remarkably... For such a small object, it's got a remarkably diverse uh, range of, of, of stuff going on. Yeah, there's so many different processes. Yeah. I mean, the, the, another one that comes to mind, which I think is quite cool, we see a change in rotation rate. Yeah, so it's got faster, mm -hmm. and now it's kind of slow. That rate of change has stopped, and it should slow down again. Oh. And that has been shown, uh, actually, uh, that you can drive that change in rotation rate purely by the shape of the comet alone. So you could say this is a completely uniform object made of all the same stuff, but just by saying, here, here's its rotation angle, here's what it looks like when it goes through perihelion, what the illumination profile is through that period, and you can change the rate of spin 
purely just by illumination from the sun. You don't need like more bicarbonate soda on this side or whatever or yeah. whatever chemicals you want, uh, want to think about, whatever volatiles. It's purely by the shape alone. And we're seeing, and it's very nice for the guy, uh, Uvi Keller, who wrote the paper, because he keeps saying, you know, he'll come up now. See, it's agreeing with my line plot that he did in the paper before we went through perihelion, and everything's matching very nicely with what he said. Of course, it's a little bit of a deviation, but it's fantastic to say just the shape alone does that. And so... You have to take all of that into consideration. So there's dust layer in the neck, you have different types of ice processes and then on the belly and all of this links into one another. So it's pretty cool. So have you so I guess you guys are gonna be taking all that into account when you sort of plan the final trajectory to crash into the uh the comment. Do you, do you know roughly whereabouts? Uh, Actually, unfortunately for everyone who asked me this, uh, and for me, that's the bit that we haven't really planned. Everything else up to then is kind of, well, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that, we'll do this flyby, then we'll do this spiral, then we'll do this mapping orbit, and then we'll gradually, then we'll do an elliptic orbit in Terminator, and then we'll go down and try and get down to a circular orbit within 10 kilometers, and then go closer if we can. Then we'll break into this other orbit and gradually try and get the, the, the spacecraft closer and closer. And then there's a two-week, we're still looking at it, period for flight dynamics in Germany who are then saying, well, this is how we'll do the end bit. Uh-huh. Um, and, yeah, we'd already said, you know, they'd said, where would you like to land? And we, we, it's plus or minus six hours, the rotation of the, <laughs> the comet period is 12 hours. Uh, I think they'll get it down a bit more accurately than that. I think we should be able to target reasonably well. So far, I think most people have said, put it on the head, try and get it near the lander. For the science, you know, some science might, you might say, put it somewhere else. But the thing is, it wasn't designed to, to land. Yeah. It's a controlled impact. We should hopefully get as much data as possible as we're approaching. Uh, but I think emotionally, one would say, well, let's put it on the same lobe as the lander mm. in case it breaks apart because it's this bilobed object as well so we think Uh, it's two comet decimals so if it breaks apart at least the spacecraft will be together for (laughs) eternity until the comet dies and then whatever but yeah at the moment no solid plans for that bit but ultimately it will be somewhere on the comet um will rosetta stay active at all as it begins to crash would you possibly find a skimming and get some more strange data that you weren't expecting we will try to be in contact with it and as close to the surface as possible but yeah again there one of the challenges for that period that last two months uh of the of the spacecraft's life are really being determined by the, the, the flight dynamics guys are trying to work out the best way of characterizing the near comet gravity because although it's a very weak gravity it still will have very weird effects when we get below uh, 10 kilometers and so you know, it's going to be a weird time around around then. But we want to try and get as close as possible. The discussion is do something so we can get as close as possible. And then from then on, you know, people have said, well, what about after it hits? It's highly, highly unlikely. I mean, even if it just went, the solar panels have got to be pointing at the sun and the antenna to Earth, mm-hmm. and this thing's rotating. Yeah, yeah. It was not designed no, sure. to go on the on the surface so i'm very much more interested in yeah. the bit before that but and then we'll see the signal go and frankly i would say a majority of the team maybe all of the team will then be in tears i know talking to the people that have worked on it uh for their lives or most of their careers that, that they look at that point as a, a low point in some sense in particular i say for the guys that do the operations so mm-hmm. because for that that really is the end but then all the scientists are like will be turning around and saying oh right 
we can't have any more data now. We really have to look at all the data we haven't had time to look at, yeah. and then bang. That's where the science really le- leaps up. And you must have so m- enough data to last many, many years. Decades, I would say. <laughs> I mean, there, there really is. Um, you know, I, I can't put a number on it. You could probably uh, say that it's this many terabytes or this many gigabytes this of many data. PhD but, uh, well, yeah, it's that, yeah. I mean, it's for me... And in particular, you say one of the problems maybe, and this is a political statement, I would guess, that within Europe, one would say we haven't got a chance of getting another comet mission in the near term because everyone will say, well, you've got, you've had Rosetta. You don't need another one, uh, which is unfortunate because we've learned a lot of lessons and everyone knows exactly what they want to do with the next comet mission. So, yeah. but who knows? But there's certainly going to be a fantastic amount of data to wade through. Hopefully you'll find something in the data that will motivate another comet mission. Well, I, th- I would think that we've already done that already, <laughs> well, just from yeah, yeah no, just sure. just from what we done. But no, I, I yeah, there, I mean, there are already questions that need to be, you know, yeah. from what we have now. You'd say, well, we could do this differently. We want to do this. You need this instead. Um, I think to add there, it's not just Rosetta itself and, and the fillet data. You would say you want to consider that that puts all of the ground-based observations in context as well. So we have a lot of coverage from the ground at the moment. I think I mentioned that earlier on. You take all of those and kind of bootstrap or calibrate the ground-based digi- uh, measurements because you make all these assumptions on what the dust production is, etc. You've got a better idea when you're sat next to the thing. And then apply that to all of the other ground-based observations of all of the other comets and even the other cometary missions that we've been to. So you add all that together and it really broadens the, mm. the, the scientific impact of the mission. How long was the Rosetta mission in the works for before the launch? Well, I think there's, I show this when I give public and well, basically my standard talk has got a slide from 87, I think. So it was just after the Giotto Halley encounter with a report of a joint ESA NASA report of the mission as it was then, which was actually a comet sample return. So it was in the 80s already we were saying, well, We've got Giotto, but th- this is what we really need to do, yeah. uh, was a comet sample return, which was way too uh, extravagant, and we went for what we have now. But, yeah, it takes a long time to plan these things. So even if you get some speculative plans together, in 20 years' time, the public may have forgotten about this, and maybe you'll get some more funding. Well, the thing here is it's more to – well, you, you have to put things in now. You have to start pro planning the mission because it takes so long Mm. um so you're you're talking yeah well i mean (laughs) to be honest with you that's not a well you want to have it in your plan but uh rosetta changed its comet one year before launch because we had a problem (laughs) with the launcher so we had to actually change that's that's another thing actually Mm. but things were planned for a smaller comet the comet we were going to vatanen was about a kilometer across the one we went to was four kilometers so there are some things we had to tweak from a, a mass perspective in terms of the lander had a harder landing because it was designed for a different comet. Why did that plan change? Uh, it was because the launcher, there was an issue with the launcher that we were on. Uh, so as soon as that happened, you delay and there's a ripple effect. That mm. means, right, you can't launch on that date. That means you can't go to that comet. Quickly redesign your mission. Um, but, the, but going back to the, the point on future missions, we go through the process within ESA at least where uh, the science program asks the science community to propose missions. And there have been some commentary missions but at the moment the direction has been there, there have been other things selected basically and they're still undergoing study but there wasn't in the last call any commentary missions uh selected we'll see i think there should be another call this year so we'll see and this but this is for medium what we call medium class missions which are around i think it's 500 million euros mm-hmm. which is not a rosetta mission rosetta was a big mission it was one of the cornerstones at the time and it i think we used the figure of 1.3 billion euros um plus a couple of extra quid now. Um, so 
we there was there were some proposals put through for main belt comets. Are looking at these asteroids that have characteristics like comets now. So we're starting to see those kind of effects occurring. But yeah, there there are some of those things going on, and NASA are looking at things as well. But from a European perspective, there is nothing in the pipeline yet. And that's what I wanted to say in a very long-winded way. <laughs> Do you have an idea of what the flavour of the week is? What they're going to be going for next, or is it? No, no. I mean, you, can, you can't say. You can't mm-hmm. say. It is a roll of the dice. And having been within that environment uh, many years ago, I was when I was working on my true love plasma. Uh, there was a mission that was the next uh, generation um, of the cluster mission, which is a full spacecraft magnetospheric mission. We were doing something called cross scale, which was going to be multiple clusters around one another to look at all the different scales of plasma. So that you know the the, the fluid scale, the ion scale, and the electron scale. And yeah, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you weren't selected, that's why I'm on Rosetta now. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, no, I think it's... Uh, that's really good. Um, so, Sorry for going on so much. No, that's, that's all right. So what will you be working on once Rosetta crashes? Obviously, what data will you it's be looking at? Controlled impact. Uh, <laughs> um, I well, to be, programmatically, I will remain on Rosetta to ensure that uh, part of my job will be to ensure that the data that we're getting back is as good as possible. So that that's for the archiving process, you know, still stimulating the, the science and, and the interest in the mission. Uh, actually, I should have said, one of the other results I think was cool was during perihelion, we had these massive outbursts occurring. One of them was so extravagant that it actually pushed the solar wind away from the, the comet. And we had wanted to get very close to measure this plasma interaction where you actually have a void in the solar wind caused by the comet being there. And we thought that would be within about 30 kilometers, and we were at 400 at one point. We're never going to get there. But then we got down to about 200 kilometers, and this big lump of well, not lump, this big collimated jet of material flew out and actually pushed the solar wind away. So we actually went through that cavity. It's called a diamagnetic cavity. We thought we'd have to get close, but actually the cavity came out and met us. So that was a nice one as well. But I thought I'd better add because it's a bit plasmary. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, just one one quick point. Uh, as you said at the beginning, you've uh, been doing a lot more outreach. You've been on Stargazing Live twice in the in the la- on the last two episodes of Stargazing yeah. Live. Do you think this is gonna? Do you want this to continue? Do you want to keep doing more outreach? Do you think you're? Um, I don't like. Um, I don't. Have I don't like talking to you. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm fed up talking to you. Lot. No, um, uh, I treat it as part of my job. I don't. Mm. I, it's difficult to say. I don't enjoy it, but I don't like doing it you don't seek it out no put it that way i know people will say but look at him i don't uh but it is part of what we have to do so the bbc asked for you yes Mm. buggers (laughs) (laughs) um but it it is part of my job to ensure well it's a bit like you saying oh nobody's been talking about rosetta but i think well i disagree with it but certainly the interest has gone massively down compared to around the landing because yeah. uh, people are fixated on this mm. and uh, still trying to remind everyone that Rosetta is not a NASA mission uh, that kind <laughs> of thing and, um, uh, and that there are not aliens um, and this got, kind of they've thing they've got an ESA flag in Kobol now so <laughs> there you go see so we've made something we've done something <laughs> we've done something it's uh, but yeah that, I speaking to a lot of people um, and some of the interactions I've had with people because Rosetta has enabled me to engage with people that have not considered science at all, have not been interested in science. Something happened with Rosetta. Uh, I've been able to engage people that I know for a fact hadn't considered science ever. Um, and now I feel that that's worth continuing, but it is an extra task on top of everything else I'm doing. So I was having a, before I came here today, when I was at, I was at work 
uh, in the Netherlands this morning talking to my manager about a trip I'm doing next week, which is actually a programmatic trip, so I'm going to go to a New Horizons meeting, but kind of saying, yeah, but then you're going to Germany on the Friday, and then you're going there the week after, and then you're going there, and you told me you were going to reduce your travel because you were complaining you were traveling too much, and then you weren't seeing your family, and you weren't being able to do your job properly, and blah, 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 and... The mantra in my house is it'll be over in September. <laughs> so, but I think at least operationally that that intensity will certainly drop down soon because for one thing, and I think I tweeted it the other day, we were talking about high level plans. So that's why I said, well, we'll do this, 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 and this, because that's roughly what we want to do from the, the science working team. The scientists want to do these kind of things. Um, not everyone wants to do it in the team, but this is one of my jobs is to make everyone equally unhappy. So <laughs> we've got to that level. And so once that starts to consolidate and solidify, that level of intensity will drop off and it will be more the general, what I'm used to from four years ago, the general running of science mm-hmm. um, and maybe do something else. Good luck in the future anyway. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll grab you once more for the dual cast well, at some point. Well, Who knows? this is it. I mean, Rosetta's, yeah. Rosetta's dead next year, so they're not going to invite me back. <laughs> Eternally asleep. Well, yes, sorry. Yes, <laughs> well done. Well remembered. That's it, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No, thank you very, thank very much. much. Cool. Awesome. Excellent. Thanks for that, Matt. Uh, what was really cool when we were watching the second bit of rehearsing when he went into his was, uh, I think, Indy uh, heard him mention the Jogcast's name on the rehearsal. I don't know if that made it into the final show. No, I don't think he did. I don't think, think he did. Yeah, he, yeah, he, so. he said to Brian and Dara, yeah, I've just been just been interviewed by the Jogcast. Yes. <laughs> and our final interview that we managed to grab was with Professor Lucy Green. Um, so Lucy was doing all of the outdoor shots on the day, which I, we really don't envy her because it was really horrible, horrible weather at Jogglebank that day that we caught her. But in between two rehearsals, she was really kind enough to, to come and find us and uh, and this for what was to be her third Jodcast interview. So here's Professor Lucy Green talking about uh, coronal mass ejections and the Solar Orbiter uh, project. So we're behind the scenes at Stargazing Live from Jodrell Bank and we're with Professor Lucy Green from MSSL. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Thanks for joining us for the third time now on the Jodcast. You were one of our early interviewees in 2007 and then again in 2012 and now we have you in the first month of 2016, so uh, welcome. Yeah, it's nice to be on the anniversary version. Yeah, yeah, so exactly, the Jodcast is turning 10. uh, Tomorrow, actually. Oh, yeah, on the day we record. So... Back in 2012, it seems weird to say that, but um, we had you on and you talked to us a lot about uh, your sort of area of research, which is coronal mass ejections uh, and how those affect space weather and how they cause aurorae and that sort of thing. So maybe you could just start by giving us an overview of, of what you've basically sort of been doing in the last three and a bit years. Yeah, it's quite scary to think that 2012 is now four years ago. Yeah. And... I still work on coronal mass ejections. Mm. I'm still fascinated by them and have lots of questions that I want to answer. So just as a sort of intro to what they are, these are the eruptions, not only of plasma, electrically charged gas, but also magnetic field from the sun's atmosphere. And it's been a quest since they were discovered in the 1970s to explain why they happen. And to sort of give you an illustration of how challenging the question is, they involve around 10 to the 25 joules of energy. They can accelerate material that has the same mass as that of a mountain into the solar system at speeds of up to a few thousand kilometres a second. So huge kinetic energy is involved. And what was realised in the years afterwards was that the energy comes must indeed come from that stored in the magnetic field. There's no other energy reservoir that can power these events. So then the question has been, well, how does that energy get released? How is it transferred from 
energy in the magnetic field into this kinetic energy that takes this material and the magnetic field out into the solar system. And that's what I've been working on over the last four years. So when would it have been <laughs> before that? Probably the last time I came on, I might have talked about magnetic flux ropes. And these are bundles of magnetic field. You can visualise them as being like a rope, you know, helical threads woven together. And a magnetic flux rope does what it says on the tin, is this bundle of helical magnetic field lines. And they trap plasma within them. But they're really interesting when it comes to coronal mass ejections because when you look at the physics of flux ropes and the configurations they take on in the solar atmosphere, they can become unstable. And so that's the sort of thing that I've been working on. Do they form in the sun's atmosphere? How do they form? And do they indeed become unstable? And it's a challenging question. So to give you a bit more information about why it's so challenging, you can't measure the magnetic fields in the sun's atmosphere where these flux ropes are forming. Mm -hmm. So what we do is try and use other observational data as a proxy for the magnetic field. And we take advantage of the fact that the magnetic field traps hot plasma. And so if we look at that glowing hot plasma, we can work from that and understand the magnetic field configurations. And we combine that with direct measurements of the magnetic field at the surface of the sun. And so I use those observations and my students are involved in using those observations. And then we also have a researcher called Gerardo Valori who works with us and he makes extrapolations of the magnetic field. And so what we've been doing is between us, we've been working out how much magnetic flux is captured in these flux ropes and why they might become unstable. At what point do they start to erupt? Okay, so it might not be exactly obvious to our listeners how you go about measuring the magnetic field at the surface of the sun, for example. So how does that happen? Yeah, it's a good question because magnetic fields in themselves feel very abstract and, you know, they're invisible. So how do you see them? And we capitalise on the fact that if an object which is glowing also has a magnetic field, it puts a fingerprint into the light that it's emitting. And in particular, it polarises the light. And so, I don't know, in the same way as you might wear Polaroid glasses to reduce glare from polarised light coming off of water, we can use polarising filters to measure the polarisation of light coming from the sun. And that tells us about the magnetic field, the strength of the magnetic field, the direction, because magnetic fields are vector quantities, so they have a direction too. So in the most reliable method that we use, we can make a map of the photosphere, which is the glowing um, visible surface of the sun mm-hmm. and we use the polarization technique and you can create a magnetic map of that layer so it's just sort of a layer of the sun it's not a three-dimensional map of the magnetic field it's mm-hmm. just at the photosphere and it tells us how strong the field is and whether it's pointing into the sun or out of the sun and you might have heard of sunspots already so these features in the photosphere and they are regions of very strong magnetic fields so when we make our magnetic maps we see the strongest fields in the sunspot regions so you mentioned sunspots and one thing that always comes to mind is that the sun has these sunspot cycles which uh, vary over the period of years when you look at your data have you been looking at it for four years is it four years of constant data have you found any periods of your own yeah so the sunspot cycle you're absolutely right it the number varies over time and it rises and falls over on average an 11 year cycle so we are interested in looking at how the magnetic fields vary across the cycle and yeah are there any changes or any periodicities in that and one thing that we see is that when the sun is creating sunspots in the rising phase of the cycle they can be 
the language we would use is sort of simpler, so they can have more simple magnetic field configurations than in the declining phase. So there's some sense from the observations that the sun's magnetic field becomes more tangled and, and twisted, forming very complex sunspot regions in the declining phase. So that's interesting for me because this tangledness and twistedness in the magnetic field is important for building up magnetic flux ropes that ultimately erupt as a coronal mass ejection. And so I want to understand, is it more likely to build up flux ropes in the declining phase or are there processes that happen all through the solar cycle to produce these flux ropes? Because indeed we see coronal mass ejections forming all through the solar cycle. The number rises and falls with the number of sunspots, but there's still an open question of the mechanisms that form these eruptive structures. Are they always the same or do we need to be thinking about different models? So actually, you mentioned models, and I was about to move on to that. As in any sort of field of astrophysics nowadays, modelling probably plays a pretty big part. How do you work with models? Are you taking your data and then trying to build that into recreating how a coronal mass ejection forms, or is it, how, how does it sort of work? Yeah, so models are so, so important, and it makes me think back to a time when I was just starting in solar physics, and I went to a conference where we had loads of observations being presented on corona mass ejections. Lots of observations taken with what we call coronagraph telescopes. These are telescopes that create an artificial solar eclipse. They block the disk of the sun, the photosphere, and they reveal the atmosphere. And then you see these eruptions moving away very clearly. And somebody got up and said, look, we've got all these observations now, but our modelling and our theoretical knowledge needs to be developed. (laughs) And it was a real plea to the community. And then here we are today, many years later, and we have fantastic models that evolve the magnetic field in ways so that we can understand the stability or loss of stability. So we call them MHD models for magnetohydrodynamics, so how uh, the magnetic field within this plasma is evolving. And they have been telling us about the physics of coronal mass ejections and making predictions about, okay, if this is really what the real sun is doing, then we should observe these particular features. And so a lot of what I do takes the theoretical and the modelled predictions and looks back into the solar atmosphere to say, okay, do we see this and which of the models are correct? So moving back very quickly to the flux ropes, when you mentioned that they become unstable and then they erupt and form these coronal mass ejections, what is actually happening? Is it that the magnetic fields are combining and releasing energy or is it that plasma is following magnetic fields out? further away from the sun. Yeah, so I think it comes down to magnetic forces. So the question is, yeah, how do you erupt this material up so that it is able to overcome the force of gravity, which is pulling the plasma back down to the surface of the sun? And the magnetic field has a force that it exerts on the plasma and it is able to overcome gravity. And the way that I conceptualise it is to think of my twisted flux rope that is anchored in the sun at both ends so I've got my sort of rope which is a bit curved and it's rooted in the sun in two points and that's that's the structure that's going to erupt as the coronal mass ejection and the magnetic forces on that curved and twisted structure actually point up so it does want to try and escape but it could do that very slowly it could gradually rise up but what we need for a coronal mass ejection is a catastrophic eruption so it repels the plasma from the sun Yes, well, the magnetic field carries the plasma with it 
another sort of way that I think about it is it being a bit like a magnetic hammock that it's captured the plasma and if you raise the hammock it takes the plasma up with it. But when it comes to looking at these magnetic structures in the sun's atmosphere, so you've got your twisted flux rate, which is rooted in the surface of the sun, but then above that and wrapping over the top and down the sides of it, you've got other magnetic fields. The sun's atmosphere is completely full of magnetic field and those magnetic fields look more like an arch. So they run over the top of the flux rope and their magnetic forces are pointing down towards the sun. So you've got this competition of the flux rope that wants to go up and the magnetic arcade that wants to trap the flux rope and keep it down on the sun. So what we've been doing with the observations is to try and understand at what point does the upward force on the flux rope win? When is the overlying magnetic field no longer able to keep it down on the surface of the sun? And what we would like to be able to do is work towards a predictive capability so that we understand the physics enough that then we can start looking at these flux ropes forming and saying, okay, they've had a certain amount of magnetic field built in and the magnetic field above has evolved in a certain way. And we know that that tipping point is going to come very soon and be able to predict when an eruption will happen. Fantastic. So I guess to build up these predictive models, you'll need ever better observations. And one one of the advantages of solar physics as opposed to other astrophysics is that the sun isn't that far away compared to some other objects, so we can actually send spacecraft there. And I think, so you're involved in the Solar Orbiter project, which is the plan to do exactly that. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Solar Orbiter is a hugely exciting mission, Uh and we're coming into the final leg of the build phase now which makes it even more exciting it's really tangible we've got instruments that are being built right now so we've had engineering models built tests have been done and we're working towards the flight models that will be integrated onto the spacecraft they're due for delivery later on this year towards the end of the year but the solar orbiter mission in itself is so exciting because it's going to fly very close to the sun so around the orbit of mercury and that might not sound so close for some people but it's Now, what's Mercury? Around one third of the distance roughly between the Sun and the Earth. One quarter to one third. I've forgotten exactly now. So the amount of radiation that Solar Orbiter will receive is then you follow the inverse square law many times higher than what we receive at the Earth. And so at its closest approach to the Sun, the Sunward side will heat up to around 600 degrees Celsius. And that presents a huge engineering challenge. Now, the orbit, in fact, takes it close to the sun and then out to the orbit of the Earth and it goes in close again and out and in and out. So all the time you've got those thermal stresses on the spacecraft. And it's also a fantastic mission because not only is it taking images of the sun, so it might be looking at these source regions of coronal mass ejections, but it also has instruments on board that measure the magnetic field and the plasma around the spacecraft. So you could imagine that in principle it could be looking at the sun, it could see a coronal mass ejection leave, it could see a flux rope erupt and then um, what would it be maybe, I don't know, a few hours later or half a day later that material and magnetic field would pass over the spacecraft and we'd be able to sense the magnetic field and the plasma and ask the question or measure directly at does it have the magnetic field that we expected it to have when it left the sun does it match our predictions or perhaps has it evolved as it's moved out through the solar system so solar orbiter is a mission that will link up what we see on the sun and what actually leaves the sun because we'll be measuring it directly will you also be able to see how it's evolved further if by some chance the chrome mass ejection occurred so that it passed through earth as well That would be fantastic if we could see something at the sun, measure it close in with solar orbiter, then it moves out, we measure it at the Earth, and who knows, maybe we pick it up with instrumentation at Mars, 
or Saturn. <laughs> you know, it just depends what the configuration of the planets is where these different missions are and how the ejection goes out from the sun and we've had this before where you see things leaving the sun and then you pick it up in multiple spacecraft and even if they're not perfectly aligned the coronal mass ejections expand to be so massive that you might have a spacecraft at the earth that measures the central part you might have a spacecraft at venus that measures you know the left flank of it and you might have a spacecraft at mars that measures the right flank and then you could put them all together and try and understand the much bigger picture of the three-dimensional structure obviously coronal mass ejections have a consequence for earth because when they do pass through us they create what we call space weather i guess and, and so that creates a worry but also it has a possibility to interfere with electrical devices and so maybe that would be a, a bit of a mixed blessing if we do get a high-powered one that comes towards earth and there are also I guess, not so good consequences. Yeah, it is like that. It's one of those things that as a scientist, you want to experience or see all possibilities. So I want to be able to see the average event. I want to be able to see the small events, but I also want to be able to see the really big, energetic, impressive events. But you're right, they're the ones that can cause us the biggest problems. So the fast-moving coronal mass ejections, lots of magnetic flux, lots of plasma, they're the ones that cause the damage. And, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we would be looking at such a massive event and it could cause problems for the spacecraft that are sent up to monitor it. So solar orbiter being that close to the sun is going to get bombarded. Uh You did mention that it's going to get incredibly hot and then if it's sitting through massive ejections at multiple points as well, do you know much about the engineering and the challenges that are involved and how they're going to get around some of these problems? Yeah, so... Luckily, we have so much heritage in the UK and experience of space missions and launching instrumentation that works for for many, many years. So as an example, another mission that we're involved with at MSSL is the Hinaday spacecraft. It's a Japanese mission, but it has a UK-led instrument that we lead on board and it has um, contribution from America and also, of course, Japan as well. And Hinaday launched in 2006 and is still operational. And indeed, the SOHO spacecraft that launched in 1994 and carries UK instruments on board, that's still operational. So we have good expertise and a track record of building kit that works. But you're right, going that much closer to the sun means you need more shielding. And Solar Orbiter has this very impressive heat shield on the front of it that's, I don't know, I think it's about three and a half metres by two and a half metres, something like that. And then for the imaging telescopes, they have little holes that the telescopes look through. So you limit the heat flux coming into your telescopes. And then there are also interesting things like the solar panels. So the way the spacecraft gets its electricity is through sunlight falling on the solar panels. And when it's close to the sun, the solar panels can turn away slightly so that they're not feeling the full onslaught of the solar radiation. And then when it comes out to the orbit of the Earth, they can turn and face the sun fully. So you can modulate how much light is falling on them. So roughly, what's the timeline of solar orbiter like at the moment? So at the moment, we... I've been working on what's called the structural thermal model so that when it comes to building instruments for space you never just build the flight model straight off there are always models that are used for testing so to make sure that all the electronics work to make sure that the thermal aspects work to make sure well that everything is going to go seamlessly once you've launched it so the flight models which will be the ones that go up they are due to be delivered by the end of 2016 the end of this year and they will go to be put on the spacecraft by um, Airbus Defence and Space in Stevenage. (laughs) So the Solar Orbiter spacecraft itself is being supplied by the UK and that's a hugely important thing for us. So British engineers and scientists are building that spacecraft and everything will be integrated and tested and then launch is due for 2018. 
Do you know much about the orbit that the solar orbiter is going to be taking at the moment? Is it going to be sort of locked in tandem with Earth, so it's always being able to send its messages back to Earth? Or is the sun going to be in the way part of the time, so that we're not going to be able to get information? Is it going to store stuff up, and whenever there's a good line of sight between us and the satellite, it's going to send everything back that it can? The orbits are really interesting, and it was an eye-opener to me just how much work goes into that aspect. So depending on when you launch and where the planets are, because we need to use Venus as a gravitational slingshot to get into this very eccentric orbit, this elliptical orbit that takes it close at one point and then out towards the Earth at the other point. And the other aspect is that the orbit will be over time inclined with respect to the plane in which the planets go around the Sun. So it will lift up and be able to see over the poles of the Earth. And it will take around three years to get into the position where we're having an orbit that takes us, you know, just around the orbit of Mercury. So not all the instruments will be turned on when we launch in 2018. The in-situ instruments will come on first because they can make measurements as they move through the solar system. But the remote sensing, I'm not sure about for all of them, but certainly some of them will only be turned on later in the mission. And then... Because it's going to be a very remote spacecraft for us, we have limitations when it comes to how much data can be returned. So we won't just be able to take loads and loads of lovely images like we do at the moment with a mission like the Solar Dynamics Observatory, which is in constant contact with the ground station, constantly sending back data. On Solar Orbiter, you're right, there will be times when you can send the data back, but it won't be all the time. We'll be limited by the fact that it's in this orbit and where it is in relation to us. So we won't be able to look at the sun throughout its orbit there will be sort of two or three weeks at a time where we'll be watching the sun gathering data and sending it back well you see it's been a pleasure having you talking about the sun and good luck for the solar orbiter although i'm sure you won't need it and everything will go fine <laughs> fingers crossed you, i won't be relaxed until it's actually working so launched and in the right orbit and working well hopefully you'll be able to come back to the jodcast for your fourth interview and tell us about how all the awesome results that you have from it I look forward to it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thanks for that, Lucy. And now on to the second brightest star in the solar system. Here is Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. The night sky for February 2016. Well, it's a lovely month for stargazing. The nights are long. We have this wonderful region of the heavens with the constellations Orion, Taurus, Gemini, Auriga, and down below, Canis Major, now beginning to move towards the western horizon, but still very visible in the early part of the evening. The three stars of Orion's belt act as pointers up to the right, towards the Hyades cluster, with the bright star Aldebaran, which lies, in fact, somewhat in front of it, and then that beautiful cluster, the Pleiades. Down to the lower left of those three stars, one reaches Sirius, the brightest star in the northern heavens and the brightest star in Canis Major. Over to the left of Orion, one finds Procyon, the only really bright star in Canis Minor. And above that, we have the heavenly twins, Castor and Pollux, in Germany. High above Orion, there's Auriga, with a rather yellow star called Capella, the line of the Milky Way passes up to the left of Orion and up through Auriga and some very nice open clusters that can be seen with a small telescope towards the southern part of the constellation. And then as the evening wears on, 
First of all, there's a relatively faint part of the sky, nothing very bright, but it has the constellation of Cancer. At its heart is a lovely open cluster called M44 or Prisope, the beehive cluster. And then, of course, Leo is rising over towards the east. Jupiter, in fact, is lying in the very southern part of Leo. It has a bright star, Regulus. I suppose it's, it's, it's knees, basically, as it's squatted down effectively on the ground. So there we go. Quite a number of nice constellations to look for during the evening sky. But what about the planets? Um, you may have known that around the very beginning of February we have quite a nice line-up of the planets. High up to the south we have Jupiter, then we have Mars and Saturn and Venus and Mercury. Mercury won't be very high above the horizon. You'll need quite a good low eastern, southeastern horizon to see it. More of that perhaps later on. Well, Jupiter. It actually reaches opposition, and that's when it's nearest the Sun, and hence pretty well nearest to us, on the 8th of next month. So this is one of perhaps three superb months during which to observe it. It's visible from late evening to dawn. As I mentioned, Jupiter starts the month in the extreme south of Leo, close to the border of Virgo. And in fact, because it's now moving in retrograde motion, it gradually moves slowly northwards and eastwards. The size of its disk increases slightly from 42 to 44 arc seconds as the month progresses, whilst its magnitude again increases very slightly from minus 2.4 to minus 2.5. So with a small telescope, one should be easily able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn, that's now a morning object. It rises at about 0430 UT at the start of February, and by about 0300 UT at the end. It lies in Ophiuchus, near the fan of Scorpius, and about 7.5 degrees above the reddish star Antares. Its diameter is increasing from 15.8 to 16.5 arc seconds during the month, as it shines with a pretty constant magnitude of plus 0.5. It'll be high enough in the southeast before dawn to make out the beautiful ring system, which has now opened out to about 26 degrees, virtually as open as they ever become. So it will be best observed just before dawn. It's very sad though that Saturn is moving down into the lowest part of the ecliptic. Its elevation never gets above about 20 degrees now, so the atmosphere will hinder our view of this most beautiful planet. Mercury, shining at magnitude zero, lies fairly near Venus during February and reaches greatest elongation from the Sun on the 7th. It should be visible low in the east for the first half of the month. It lies closest to Venus on the 13th, when it's about 4 degrees down to Venus's lower left. A low eastern horizon will be needed to spot them, as this pair will be less than 10 degrees high, some 30 minutes before sunrise. Mars is lying in Libra, moving eastwards relative to the stars in retrograde motion. 
its brightness increases slightly from magnitude plus 0.8 to plus 0.3 as the angular size of its disk grows from 6.8 up to 8.6 arc seconds. It's highest in the morning twilight and then given a good telescope and excellent seeing it might be possible to spot the North Polar Cap and possibly Certis Major, one of the most prominent of the dark features on the surface. Mars is moving towards opposition on May the 22nd this year. At its closest approach to Earth on the 30th, it will have an angular diameter of 18.6 arc seconds and shine almost as brightly as Jupiter. Venus is nearing the end of a long morning apparition when it's dominated the eastern sky before dawn. It rises at the start of the month as twilight begins, but only an hour before sunrise by month's end. As the angle of the ecliptic to the horizon is small at this time of the year, Venus is especially low above the horizon. But even so, shining at magnitude minus 3.9, it's still easily visible given a good low eastern horizon. During the month, its angular size drops from 12 to 11 arc seconds, but at the same time, the percentage of the illuminated disk increases from 85 to 90 percent, which explains why the magnitude remains constant. It stays close to Mercury and lies four degrees to its upper right on the 10th of the month. But what about some highlights? Well, I've already said it's a great month to observe Jupiter. The features seen in the Jovian atmosphere have been changing quite significantly over the last few years. For a while, the South Equatorial Belt vanished completely. In fact, I show a picture taken by Damien Peach of Jupiter at that time on our website. But it's now returned to its normal wide state. The other thing to note is that the great red spot seems to be shrinking. So we'll keep a good eye on that during this apparition. But it's getting on towards half the size that it was observed to be some years ago. I give a list on the Jodcast, the Jodrell Bank website, which gives you the times when the great red spot, perhaps now not quite so great, is in fact facing the Earth during the evening. So that's a good time to have a look at Jupiter. On the 1st of February, before dawn, we have Mars and a third quarter moon. They'll be seen, if clear, due south. And as I've said, as it nears the Earth, we may begin to see some details on its surface. And I should point out, as been in many of the papers, there's quite a nice line-up of the planets before dawn. High up in the south is Jupiter, then we have Mars, and then Saturn, and then Venus, and Mercury. So in the first few days of February, why not get up a bit early and have a look? Again, on 6th of February, just before dawn, the very thin crescent moon will lie above Venus and Mercury, looking towards the southeast. You may well need binoculars to spot Mercury, but please don't use them once the sun has risen. Quite a nice event on the evening of February the 13th, 
when the moon is going to occult the 4.4th magnitude star Xi 1 Ceti. And the nice thing is, it occults it with the dark side, the unilluminated disk. So the star is seen to disappear in a twinkle of an eye, perhaps. And that's around 1920. And it, re it will reappear below the moon's illuminated disk at around 2019. Now, I said around because the, due to the fact that the moon is not that far away from the Earth, the timings that I've given on the chart on the night sky website will vary somewhat across the UK. The timings I gave were for Manchester, which you could say is roughly halfway from the south to the north. I know they say we're in the north, but we're not really. On the 14th of February, the moon passes close to the Hyades cluster, not quite as close as last month, but it's quite a nice photo opportunity. And you see that red giant star Aldebaran shining at magnitude plus 0 0.8. It's not part of the Hyades cluster, but lies part way towards it. On February the 23rd, the moon is close to Jupiter. The moon will be near full and pass down to the right below Jupiter during the night. And I've given the diagram of the relative positions at about 9.30, a good time to have a look. And also, on the same diagram on the website, the positions of the Galilean satellites. Nicely spread on either side. So just put night sky, Jodrell Bank, into a search engine, and that will actually bring up the page. I try usually each month to give something to look for on the moon, and this month I've chosen the Hyginus Rill. For some time, there was quite a debate as to whether craters on the moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. I remember Patrick Moore saying that it was volcanic because all the craters were actually round. But in fact, the impacts are so fast, they're called hypervelocitic, that the object burrows down beneath the lunar surface and then effectively explodes. And so unless the angle of attack is very shallow, perhaps less than 15 degrees, the craters will actually appear round. Anyway, it's thought that the Hyginus crater, which lies in the heart of the rill is possibly volcanic in origin. It's an 11 kilometer wide rimless pit in contrast with impact craters that have raised rims. And its close association with the rill of the same name associates it with internal lunar events. It can be quite easily seen to be surrounded by dark material. It's thought that an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below so the underlying surface collapsed, forming the crater. Anyway, I wish you a good month, and hopefully with some more clear evenings than we've seemed to have had in the north during January. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Antipodean listeners, here's Haratina Mogashanu with a night sky where you are. Clear skies from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu, and tonight... I am your storyteller from the Southern Hemisphere. Getting to know the Southern sky is a wonderfully strange experience. In any new place that I visit, I always feel grateful for landmarks. On Earth, I am looking for trees and buildings and mountains. In the sky, I always look for the brightest stars. Here in New Zealand, there are places and times 
when the light of the individual stars is lost in the haze of the Milky Way, as if a blanket of tiny lights is covering the Earth at night. Not this time. This time of the year, we're very lucky to see the brightest stars in the evening sky and, a bonus for this year, something that hasn't happened since 2005, is that the planets are aligned in the morning sky. And even if you are not a morning person, it's worth waking up for that. Let's start with the evening sky as you do. The sun's winter wife, Hineta Kurua Sirius, is the brightest star in the sky, reaching the sky's peak at nightfall to the north of the sky's highest point, the zenith. Left of Takurua are the stars of Tautoru, or, as we know them from the Northern Hemisphere, Orion's Belt, Al-Nilam, Al-Nitak and Mintaka. Mintaka is located precisely on the celestial equator, which is the projection of Earth's equator in the sky. This means that it rises perfectly due east and sets perfectly due west, a great companion for celestial navigation. To Kiwis, Tautoru makes the bottom of the pot. There are a few pots and pans in the New Zealand sky, and the cuisine here is delicious, so pots and pans figure strongly in New Zealand's astronomy too. One important pot contains Orion's belt, and its sword is the handle of the pot. Above the pot, or Tautoru in Maori, at a distance somewhere between 700 and 1,700 light-years from Earth, it's the glistening blue giant Puanga, or Rigel, another very bright star. Actually, Rigel is the seventh brightest star in the sky. About 10 million years old, it is still burning hot at 12,000 degrees in the constellation of Orion. Remember that the modern constellations are only patches in the sky, similar to countries on Earth, although they have kept the names given long ago to the asterisms that inspired their creation. There are 88 such patches covering the entire sky. One of them is Orion. The dot-to-dot -dot shapes that we make from stars are called asterisms. Asterisms can be inside of a constellation, like the pot is inside Orion, or they can stretch over many constellations, like the Maori Waka or Tamarereti stretches across 270 degrees over the Milky Way in November. Another example is the ancient asterism of Argonavis, which today is made of Carina, Pupis, and Vela. Back to constellations, by convention, the brightness of the stars in a constellation is noted with the letters of the Greek alphabet. Alpha for the brightest, beta for the second brightest, and so on. And just like for countries on Earth, if the people of New Zealand are called New Zealanders, according to this convention, the name of the specific star identified by a Greek letter is followed by the genitive form of its parent constellation's Latin name. For instance, Alpha Orionis means the brightest star in Orion. This is something 
that astronomer Johann Bayer invented long ago to help him map the stars. But as there are always exceptions, here is one. Although Rigel is the brightest star in Orion, its Bayer designation is Beta Orionis, which means that when Bayer was compiling his famous atlas, Uranometria in 1603, Rigel was perhaps not the brightest star in Orion, but the second brightest. Many years have passed since then, but Rigel has kept the name of Beta, even though it is now officially the brightest star in Orion, and sometimes historical conventions or events are more important in the grand scheme of things. However, for me it is important to understand why we stick to them even when they don't make too much sense. In stellar navigation, Rigel is also a very important star. Old records name it Marinus Aster, Latin for maritime star. No surprises why that was, since Rigel is bright, easily located and equatorial, which means it is near the celestial equator, the projection of our own equator in the sky. And this means it is also visible all around the world's oceans. Its declination, the celestial equivalent of latitude, it's minus 8 degrees. That would be like saying 8 degrees latitude south if it were for a town or a city on Earth. So, Rigel cannot be seen from latitudes north of 82 degrees. That is about 8 degrees from the North Pole. Splendor and honors were attributed to the lot of these born under Rigel, according to the ancients. Opposite Rigel, on the other side of Orion's belt, more precisely below it, as seen from Wellington, New Zealand, Putara, or Betelgeuse, a shining red giant, or more precisely a supergiant, is the ninth brightest star in the sky. Betelgeuse is the second brightest star in Orion and it's located at about 600 light years away from us. Betelgeuse is a mistranslation of the Arabic name which I will not even try to pronounce but it means the armpit of the central one or according to some other people Orion's hand. It is part of the famous winter triangle of the northern hemisphere and for the ancients Betelgeuse brought fortune, martial honors, wealth, and other kingly attributes. Betelgeuse is visible to virtually every inhabited region of the globe, except for a few research stations in Antarctica at latitudes south of 82 degrees, that is, within around 8 degrees from the South Pole. That is, because just like Rigel, the declination of Betelgeuse in the sky is almost 8 degrees, but on the other side of the equator. If Betelgeuse would be a city on Earth, it would be located at 8 degrees latitude north. Both cities of Betelgeuse and Rigel would share the same meridian, which in the sky is called Right Ascension. Even though 
It is just a tad younger than Rigel at about 8.5 million years old. Betelgeuse is a dying star approaching supernova, which is estimated to happen within the next 100,000 years. Its end is near. Betelgeuse is also known as Alpha Orionis, although it is now the second brightest in the constellation after Rigel. And it was indeed noted as a much brighter star than what is now observable. Betelgeuse, together with the two dogs, Sirius the big dog and, on the other side of the Milky Way, Procyon the small dog, make a beautiful triangle, which obviously from New Zealand is upside down, but still pointing at Taumatakuku, the Hyades, which are forming a mathematical less than shape in the northwestern sky, as seen from Wellington. Lower down, the Tafiti, the Shining Ones, or the Pleiades Star Cluster, prepare for their trip to the underworld, soon to disappear behind the sun. We will not be seeing them from March until the end of June, when they will reappear just before the sunrise, but they will be called a different name then, Matariki. Unlike us Europeans who once we name a pattern of stars, we keep it at all times of the year. The Southern Hemisphere is very fluid in this respect. And I have learned that the Maori have different names for the same stars at different times of the year. Mostly, these combinations come in trees. I have wondered why, and then realized that as the Earth goes around the Sun, the sky visibly appears to change from season to season. That is, if you compare it at the same time of the night throughout the year. So for the Maori, making different combinations in the sky according to the season was a great way to lock this knowledge into a different form of a calendar. In fact, if you watch the stars in the sky all night long, you will see that they behave just like the sun. They will drift westwards throughout the night. Of course they do. It is not them. It's the earth spinning around. But unlike the sun, if you watch carefully, you will notice that every night the same stars if you look at them at the exact same hour and minute as the previous night, they would seem to have shifted their position also westwards, just a tiny little bit. For us on Earth, this change is very visible from month to month and especially from season to season. This is why I believe that the Maori had seasonal names for their different groupings of stars because the same shapes are repeating every year. Stars make a great seasonal marker, especially for their particular culture, which was created whilst navigating the seas and oceans. Compare that to landlubbers like myself, who always had nature and plants and landmarks to guide ourselves by, and who often experiences four very different seasons. Once we had named a constellation or an asterism, its name would stay the same throughout the year. Not so for the Maori. No wonder why our views of the skies are so very different.
people of old did not have such detailed information about all these celestial movements and imagined that those stars, just like the plants in the winter time, for those who had winter time, would go to the underworld for a while. Perhaps that's the reason why the reappearance of the Pleiades in the sky after a long absence is associated in many cultures with dead ancestors. So how about the next time you look at the sky, you choose a star and a signpost, like a street lamp or something, and watch that star at exactly the same hour of the night throughout the year from exactly the same observation spot. I too have one such spot and I call it the center of my universe. From my center of the universe, south of the zenith, here in New Zealand, radiant Atutahi Canopus, it's the second brightest star in the entire sky. A circumpolar star, Atutahi Zenariki, a chief of the stars. Another constellation that is circumpolar to Wellington is the Southern Cross, visible here at this time of the year from 9 p.m. Coincidentally, the Southern Cross will be easily located roughly at the same hour, 9 o'clock, on what I call the Grand Clock of Heavens. This is the area of the sky starting from around minus 60 degrees declination to which Canopus belongs as well and Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri and the Southern Cross. Now looking at the circumpolar stars from New Zealand, you will notice that they seem to progress on the sky clockwise, which makes that region of the sky look even more like a clock. Within the grand clock of the heavens, the large and the small Magellanic clouds are two nearby galaxies visible to the naked eye south of the zenith. They are so prominent in the sky that the first time I spotted the large Magellanic cloud I simply believed it was a Cyrus cloud, biased by my northern hemisphere image of how a galaxy should look like. Imagine my awe when I realized what I was looking at. And if you wonder where our galaxy, the Milky Way, disappears, as we can only see a very few bright stars in the sky at the moment, well, actually, it hasn't gone away. It is well known that in New Zealand there are times when the Milky Way stretches as a band of stars from north to south going through zenith. This is one of those times. At dusk, around 10 p.m. in New Zealand, since now it is still summertime, and the night falls very late, the band of the Milky Way comes up from the northern horizon where Capella is hiding below it, then arches through Betelgeuse, Sirius, the Southern Cross and its two pointers Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri where it is at its brightest and then descends to Earth through the south. But during this time of the year we are looking towards the outskirts of the Milky Way, especially when we turn our gaze towards Orion. Thus, we see less stars in the sky than when we are looking towards the center of the Milky Way. Within the Milky Way, stretching as an arch high across the sky, 
its brightest regions are well positioned for observing up in the sky away from the atmospheric haze of the horizon. So, let's turn our gaze south of Zenith to the ancient constellation of Argonavis. Argonavis lies entirely in the southern celestial hemisphere, which is the part of the sky south of the celestial equator, the projection of Earth's equator in the sky. Even though it is called the southern celestial hemisphere, because the sky is really huge, we can see most of it from anywhere in the world, a part of the regions of the sky covered by the Earth itself. Argonavis can be found east of Canis Major, south of Monoceros and Hydra, largely in the Milky Way, covering a great extent of the sky, almost nearly 75 degrees in length and containing about 830 naked eye components. Modern day astronomers have divided Argonavis into three constellations, Carina the Kill, Pupis the Stern and Vela the Sail. No bow. The ship is said to be moving stern forward. The Naut of Argonaut and the Navis of Argonavis come from the same Indo-European root Nau, which means boat or ship. We constructed many of our modern words from this ancient termination. Aeronaut, Aquanaut, Astronaut, Cosmonaut. Of the three constellations that made the ancient Argo, Pupis marks the stern. Inside Pupis, two less known Messier objects, M46 and M47, are revealing their beauty to Southern Hemisphere observers. Messier 46, also known as NGC 2437, is an open cluster at a distance of about 5,500 light-years away. Approximately 500 stars make the young cluster, which is thought to be only around 300 million years old. This is a very young age for some stars. There is also a planetary nebula, NGC 2438, near the cluster's northern edge. But that's not planet at all. A planetary nebula is an expanding glowing shell of ionized gas ejected from old red giant stars late in their lives as the outer layers of the stars are expelled by strong stellar winds. Messier 46 open cluster is located close by Messier 47, another open cluster which is about one degree west in the sky so the two fit well in a binocular or wide-angle telescope field, like two close sisters, a name to which they are often referred. Messier 47, or NGC 2422, was considered for a while the lost Messier object, as the coordinates indicated by Charles Messier did not reveal anything for a long time. Rediscovered independently as NGC 2422 by a Canadian astronomer, T.F. Morris, who had the realization that the two were the same thing, M47 lies at a distance of about 1,600 light years from Earth, with an estimated age of about 78 million years. 
there are about 50 stars in this cluster. And if the evening sky belongs to the brightest stars at this time of the year, the morning is a regal of planets. Jupiter comes up at dusk, shining brightly with a steady golden light. It will be in the sky all night long. Until 20th of February, the bright planets are forming a magnificent alignment before dawn. Golden Jupiter looms in the northwest sky. Reddish Mars climbs northeast of the zenith while creamy Saturn is midway up in the eastern sky. Brilliant Venus adorns the eastern horizon and Mercury shimmers below and to the right of Venus near the horizon. The next occurrence of the kind is in August 2016 and then not again until 2018. So to see it, all you have to do is to wake up before sunrise. I found this beautiful writing of the ancient poet Aratos. Stern forward Argo by the great dog's tail is drawn, for hers is not a usual course, but backward turn she comes as vessels do when sailors have transposed the crooked stern. On entering harbour all the ship reverse and gliding back on the beach it grounds. Stern forward thus is Jason's Argo drawn, Canopus at its helm. Thank you for listening to the February 2016 podcast. Until next time, kia ora and kia kaha from Space Place at Carter Observatory in the Southern Hemisphere. Thanks for that, Haratina. Now, on to the feedback. Max. All right, so recently we've had a few uh, feedback emails telling us about how broken our website is and how <laughs> terrible our download performance is. Yeah, we're really sorry about that. We're slowly getting it sorted. Yeah. Um, we fix some problems, more problems come up, but um, I think we're in the process of migrating to a few new servers. Yeah, every time we fix one issue, we reveal another. Our server, we think, is sort of lurching towards an early death, but we are in the process of, of moving servers, hopefully getting a better server. Uh, getting better backups as well. So if one server fails, you can another one will serve you. Should should it should it not be working? Um, but as a Jodcast doesn't have its own money, this takes a little bit of time. So thanks for your patience. But if something does break, it is important that you tell us because we don't always know. This is the consequence of the Jodcast becoming old now, as mm. it is ten years old, and uh, ten years in tech stuff is a long time. So yeah, as as Ben said, bear with us, and uh, we we'll, we try to get it fixed as soon as we can. Cool, and we've also had plenty of Jodcast Live applicants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've been coming in thick and fast, right? How many yeah. have we got now? 18. 18 in total, yeah. Which is amazing. Which, For uh, three days? About that, yeah. I think uh, it was... One of them, their website was down. So, <laughs> so yeah, basically two days um, cumulatively, which is nice. So we've got a nice spreadsheet filling up of names. So a lot of them we, we recognise from the Facebook group, a lot of active participants, people who ask us a lot of Ask an Astronomer questions. So it'll be nice to put cool. faces to those names. It'll be yeah. really nice, yeah. So how are the preparations for the Jodcast Live going? They're coming along, slowly. We, um, we're organising things. We're trying to find some uh, helpers to help us out with the actual show itself. But we've, yep. got, we've got plenty of ideas. I think we've, we can't tease too much because we've, we've chatted a lot about it before and we need to save some surprises for the actual show. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, if you hadn't heard already, which I'm sure you have because we mention it every time, 28th of February. 
Beer and JBO while go on our website and go to www.jogcast.net slash live and you'll be able to find a form that you can fill in and apply for some tickets to come and see all of our lovely faces. Yes, that'll be a treat indeed. <laughs> a shock. <laughs> Were you listening to the Jogcast after that? Yeah, there's a reason it's an audio podcast. Yeah, a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we haven't had any post, but on uh, Facebook we've had lots of lovely birthday wishes, so thanks for all of those. Um, we had loads, yeah, thank you. It was really, really nice. They came in thick and fast right from the beginning. Uh, and some funny pictures as well. Mm. Josie, who used to do some presenting for us, sent a great one of... The level with a birthday hat. with a with a party mm. popper thing yeah, <laughs> coming out of it and a yeah. party hat on. Yeah, we'll uh, lift that. I think and uh, yeah, yeah, check that out on Twitter <laughs> if you haven't seen it. It's, uh, it's brilliant. We've had a message from Jake, who is a new listener, um, and over the last two months he's listened to everything that we've done the last two years. Just wanted to say you guys are doing a fantastic job. I look forward to more monthly podcasts, even more than Tyson's Star Talk Radio. It's high praise from from Jake there. Yeah, two years. In two months. That's impressive. That is impressive. That's wow. really cool. You've Thank got you. eight more years to get through. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. The servers can handle it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, want, you might want to get them all in the now. Before they... <laughs> no, no, we're not accusing you of breaking no. anything. <laughs> Don't worry. No, it was long dead anyway. <laughs> yeah, you might want to get them all before they go down forever. <laughs> <laughs> that won't be a thing. In fact, worry. Jake, download them all and you can be our backup server. <laughs> oh, also from Francis... Just hunting for pulsars as part of Stargazing Live Challenge. Apparently, if you stumble across one that is orbiting a black hole, there would be a Nobel Prize for it. Now, wouldn't that be the best excuse for not going to work? Oh, sorry, I can't make that day. I'm collecting my Nobel Prize. Great show this month. Thanks a lot, Francis. Um, that's great to hear you getting involved with the Stargazing Live Challenge. Yeah, it would have been great if I'm on orbiting a black hole. Though. I don't know what one of those plots would have looked like. Well, uh, as to the uh, excuse for getting off work, um, some astronomers think that's the only excuse to not, for not going to work is the day you collect a Nobel Prize, and otherwise it's work, work, work. But, yeah. Well, good luck, Francis, with your Nobel Prize. <laughs> In from Mark Shaw, tickets requests sent from me and my son Luke as we came to the last one. Can't wait, and I'll bring, bring you some cake. Lovely, can't wait for that, Mark. Cake's good. Cake always, cake. Cake yeah, we had some cake in the last episode, actually. <laughs> I was the only one there for that. But Megan made that lovely carrot cake. <laughs> cake tends to get everyone out of their office as well. Whenever someone uh, finishes their viva for their PhD and there's some cake around. Always, always It's cake. a mass exodus to the kitchen. Yep. Yeah. That's how you get people into seminars. You <laughs> lure them with cake. <laughs> all right, well, thanks a lot for all those messages, guys. Um, and from Twitter, thanks again for all of your birthday wishes. We've had plenty of those. Yeah, the Ape posted a picture of Comet Catalina, which, uh, which was just off the tail of the Great Bear uh, and in the sky last month. So thanks very much for that. It's a really cool picture, actually. We asked if any listeners had been here since the start, um, and Owen Roberts tweeted us to say that I listened to that the day after it was released and everyone since. I think you deserve some sort of medal for that, Owen. Uh, that's, that's a great effort. Or a Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> Just to thank Matt Taylor for his his like and retweet of my my picture of us uh, of you guys interviewing him on the day at Star. Oh, I saw that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's a really nice uh, and also, we retweeted the, uh, the the selfie that he requested with me and Charlie uh, rather than us kind of. Begging for one from him, so that we, was really we, cool. we were he quite pleased back. about it. Yeah, yeah he yeah. came back just after his piece was done and said mm. we'd forgotten. So that was really nice. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, we were long gone by then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll have him back on the show. So if you enjoy the show, don't forget to rate us five stars on iTunes and leave a positive review. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. 
on Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Um, so do remember to send in your Ask an Astronomer questions uh, by any and all of these formats. Uh, Facebook, Twitter is great. Send us a question by post if you really want to. Um, yeah, we are running quite low now on asking astronomer questions. We are aware that we've still got some to get through, uh, and we will get through those, um, but the post bag is looking quite low. And in fact, it would be really great to have your voices on the Jodcast, so if you can find a way of recording your question and sending it to us, or even uploading it to a website we can download it from, um, that would be fantastic. We'd really like to get your voices on here too. And all that's left to say is thank you. Thanks to Dr. Matt Taylor, Dr. Brooke Simmons, Professor Lucy Green and Sally Cooper for the interviews. The editors were Benjamin Shaw, George Bendo and Charlie Walker. And the producers were Benjamin Shaw and Charlie Walker. So until next time, Jod on! on.